When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. But we have to go back down the hatch. It's the Lost Rewatch podcast here on Post Show Recaps, taking one last look back at season five with our season five feedback special. I'm Josh Wiggler. I'm joined here by Mike Bloom. Mike Bloom, one last look at the incident, one last look at time travel, one last look at an era of Lost before we have to begin that final season discourse oh boy discourse and discord as well i'm surprised <laughs> yeah. we're doing a feedback show josh because i'm pretty sure sawyer shot the comms so we can't talk with anybody oh my god yeah uh carrier pigeon that still works that's good you can get your carrier pigeon get your carrier mes- hurley messages. bird in just tie your yes. message to his leg yeah par avion uh is from once upon a time literally that's emily deravin look mm-hmm. at that uh but, but you not in this season feedback you can send your feedback. Well, we're about to get back to Claire, which is great. Uh, you can send your feedback to us each and every week down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. We have not been able to really do the feedback thing 
for a little while. And after a minute, I think we were just like, well, we're going to have the feedback special. Let's do it all there. It's going to be a really big episode. It's our opportunity to stop down between seasons as Mike. Uh, we're here. Uh, we're up to the final season of, of Lost. We have to like get through this podcast and talk about season five one more time and do some like number crunching and all mm-hmm. of that good stuff and have some really fun conversations along the way. But by and large... We're in the end game now. Uh, yeah. It's crazy. Is this, is this like starting second semester senior year where like first semester you're still having a good time, right? You're taking advantage of that literal seniority. And now you're saying, oh, crap. In, in you know, 18 weeks, this is all going to be done. I, I don't know if I want to face that. But as the end tells us, you know, whether or not you feel ready, you do need to move on eventually. And so... It's it's weird to say. It's weird to wrap my mouth around the the words that we are nearing the final season of coverage here on Down the Hatch. Yeah, uh, I thought that you were going to say it's like senior year and like we're fully checked out. No, I mean far from it. You and I are in it for the long. <laughs> we're those guys being like, well, those AP exams don't ace themselves, fellas. Let's yeah. get into it. Like we are whole hog going right until that final bell rings on the last day of school no senioritis here on dth no sir no no sir all right a couple of notes right off the top before we dig in any deeper this will be our feedback show we'll go over all of the season mvps and lvps and where they fit alongside the greater list we will um we will go through all of the episode rankings from this season and fit them into the greater list as well uh we will have the feedback from all of you we will have some of our own observations as well. Mike loves to split the season into acts. We will talk about that. So, so much that we will get into this week. Um, If you are just like full up on podcasts and you feel like, okay, I'm going to skip the feedback show, totally get it. Mm -hmm. We're coming back next week, starting season six. With that said, this is the moment to just really hammer home the way that Down the Hatch is approaching the final season of Lost is by talking about Across the Sea as the first episode. It is the anti-penultimate episode of Lost, but for Down the Hatch, it is the final season prologue. It's more like the mommy penultimate episode of Lost. No aunties involved. <laughs> yeah, no aunties involved. The mommy penultimate episode <laughs> of Lost <laughs> is what we will be watching next week. We are not going to LAX. We are going to go to LAX in two weeks. We are first going across the sea. And look, is it going to make this episode that is uh, famously one of the most divisive episodes in all of Lost an excellent episode? No, it's not going to do that. Will it make it better? I think it might make it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, will it make it good? I don't know about that. But I think it will be uh, very instructive for you and me, Mike, as we're like charting the journey forward through the final season. I think it is going to be very useful for you and I to be able to have like our conversations about first of all like just like do some rage dumping of like uh like this is real this is how you wanted to convey this information right. this is the ev- like Alice and Janie this is what you wanted to do like we can do all of that it could be cathartic for you and me we can get angry at some of the characters and some of their decisions as well but I do think in terms of like um, some of the set pieces for the final season and certainly like a reinforcement of the final thematic stakes of Lost. I think it is very, very useful to talk about across the sea 
first. And yeah. what it will also help us with later on down the line is when we finish the candidate, we don't have to wait two weeks to deal with the emotional fallout of that. We'll be able to just push on, which will be great. Yeah, and, well, um, and it's also interesting because the way that season five ends, or at least I should say the beginning of the end in the form of the opening scene from the incident, features these two men who we have not seen before in Lost. And I think jumping into an episode that focuses solely on them is going to be very, very fun. Because it's really this almost like the immediate follow-up to like, wait, who are these two guys? Okay, I guess that one is Jacob, and the, the one in the beginning is now living inside of John Locke. To then go into their origin story will, I think, bring some fulfillment that was very, very, very much delayed. Uh, that was one of the big questions coming out of season five, especially with the death of Jacob. And I think that having that satisfied in the beginning of season six, I'll be really intrigued to see. I've never put it at the beginning of season six before. This will be a first time reordering for me. And I'll be intrigued to see if having the answers immediately precede the questions here uh, will help uh, maybe give a, a sweeter swallow to some of the more odd choices when it comes to this final season. Uh, so I think it'll I think it'll be useful also to like have the conversations about like uh, being able to frame the final season um, and the Man in Black's actions through the final season from the starting point of Across the Sea, where he kind of cuts a sympathetic figure. You know, yeah. uh, like he's he's not like the best guy, but he's not the absolute worst. And Jacob definitely seems like the bigger a hole of the two of them in that episode. And I think you this is a villain I think, origin I do story. Think, I do think you want that. Like, if you're gonna, if we're gonna even stand a chance of getting on board with, like, oh, that man in black might be on to something, uh, you know, type of nonsense, then I think that we're gonna need that. So, anyway, we're doing that. That's coming next. Across the Sea is gonna be the next episode. That's how we're reordering the final season. Prepare accordingly. I also want to let people know that for the final season, of Lost uh, that we are talking about here on Down the Hatch as we are moving into season six. We want to be as community focused as humanly possible here with the hatchlings along the way and the patrons of post-show recaps. So something that we are going to aim to do every week, uh, timing dependent, um, is watch the episode of Lost that we are talking about for the podcast, a great opportunity to talk together, watch together, do the water cooler together, um, also collect some feedback for the podcasts as well. Um, so it's something we're really excited to do, and we're going to start that as soon as Across the Sea. We are going to watch that live with the patrons of Post Show Recaps at the Discord level um, on September 6th, 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Mike and I will be in there watching Across the Sea with anyone who wants to join us as well to have that conversation and talk through the episode as a little bit of bonus down the hatch content. We're going to aim to do this every week. Sometimes both of us will be there, both Mike and I. Sometimes it'll just be one of us. But this is the plan for the final season. Let's have this communal experience together. So consider signing up if you have not done so already. It's the start of a new month. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the it's the uh, it's month twelve of the first <gasps> year of the post show recaps Happy patron program. We don't have the rights. We don't have okay. the rights. Eric Divestine, uh, you know what to do. We don't have the rights. It's the final month of the first year of the Post Show Recaps patron program. Also, this is the last month that you can sign up at that $15 award winner tier and start your journey towards a Wiggler's Wombat's hat, if that is something that interests you. We are taking that off the menu. Oh, no, you're uh, throwing that into the heart of the island? 
We're throwing it into the heart of the island. So if you ever wanted a Wiggler's Wombats hat, uh, this is the last time that I know we have a surefire way of getting it to you. We are going to probably figure that out at some point down the line, but there are no imminent plans for it. This will be the last time you sign up at the award winner tier. If you're there for three months, you are eligible for a Wiggler's Wombats hat. The last time that you can sign up for that three-month journey is going to be September 2021. So if you've been thinking about it, this is your last shot at that for a little while. And it is also an opportunity to hop in on these weekly Lost watches as we are going through the final season of Lost. So once again, that's patreon.com slash post-show recaps. One last bit of business before we move forward we got to thank our sponsors for this episode of down the hatch those are our friends over at geico do you own or rent your home sure you do and i bet it could be hard work you know what's easy bundling policies with geico geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renters insurance along with your auto policy it's a good thing too because you already have so much to do around your home go to geico.com get a quote and see how much you could save it's geico easy visit geico.com today that's geico.com. Mike Bloom, shall we discuss season five of Lost? Yeah, it's weird to say goodbye to this because I had so much fun watching this. It's a very oddly regarded season of Lost. Yeah, as we spoke about, I think it is the most consistent one, but it's also, I think, confident in its consistency in that they said, we're going to take things in an odd direction, right? We've gone but through the x-axis, we've gone through the y-axis, now we're basically going through the z-axis here. We are splitting our group essentially down the middle and spending the first third of the season in two different places. And even when we come back, we're still sort of existing in two different locations, even if it's the same place from a a latitude and longitude perspective. But I was super surprised with just how solid the season was overall. Uh, I wrote this out before when we were having some discourse with the patrons, I will still, after watching both seasons four or five, say that season four had the higher highs for me, but season five was the most consistent overall, and I would argue the most consistent season Lost ever has. Uh, and yeah. I think that's that's a product of them being able to map out everything from beginning to end, having a writing staff that was sort of vetted at that point to be comfortable enough with the characters. We don't necessarily have this like season one thing going on where you bring in people from time to time to just write the characters in odd ways at certain points. Like everyone knew what they were doing in season five. And that really showed in my opinion. Um, I totally agree. I think, I think uh, the consistency being the thing um, really, really hits home and feels right to me when we're looking at the scores from across the season, just like the feeling of so many of those episodes across the season, what we're doing after we watch the, the premiere next week. But like obviously the constant is in season four. That's going to push it to a certain point. There's the the shape of things to come. Like there's there are moments in season four that are just like tippy top of the mountain type stuff. Mm-hmm. But also I think there's some moments in season four that really plummet to the depths. Uh, and I don't think season five has any of that. I think season five, your lowest rated episode was a three, and that was an outlier if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, pretty much everything else was in like the three point two to four point two range, and the three. I mean, for me, my least favorite episode of Lost Season 5 was what I would call a nothing burger, which is better than some of the least, you know, favorite episodes of Seasons 1 through 4, which I would call outright bad episodes of Lost. Okay, well, with all that said, let's get into some feedback. I think this first one is relevant to our conversations from Jen from Minnesota. Uh, Jen writes in and says, Season 5 is the best. 
It's got it all. What, no, wait a minute. It's in caps, Josh. We know what we do with the series Bible. I think you have oh. to read it as such. All right, fine. I'll read this email like we used to do with the series Bible when there was ever anything in caps lock. Caps lock I would scream it. Um, Jen from Minnesota writes, Season 5 is the best. It's got it all. Time travel. <laughs> yes, wrap your head around it. All things Dharma. Oh, no, that's always capitalized. Star Wars. Sorry, Hurley. Don't mess with perfection. The Hatch and the Incident and the best love story of the show. Sawyer and Juliet shouldn't work so well together at their first meeting in season three. She tases him. But because of the situations they have to go through together, they form a timeless bond. And ultimately, that pays off at the end with I love you, James. I love you so much. It is everything. The season <laughs> seriously is magical. That's from Jen from Minnesota. And not even mentioning the Jacob part of it in terms of magic. Yeah, so here is what I would suggest. Season five is the best. It's not my favorite. And sure. I think those totally. are two very different things. Uh, that there is an idea of like quality versus personal preference. Still, when it comes to personal preference, it's still season one for me. Uh, just those those nostalgic emotions and the introductions of all those characters. Again, not the most perfect season, but like getting to experience that flaws and all is my favorite way to to get into Lost. It's the season I've watched the most times, but I'm sure we'll get into it. No surprise, I imagine, from an average score perspective, season five is going to top up for many of the reasons that Jen mentioned, not to mention as well, like I think a lot of really big character transitions, right? Like this is a huge transitory season for Jack. Jack takes on some Lockean perspectives. Kate is at her most complete in terms of purpose. We've talked about the renaissance of Sawyer, the person that he becomes. You know, there, there's so many big transitions for these characters over the course of season five, which I think comes from the confidence of the writers that they say, okay, we know what we're doing from a plot perspective. Let's focus on characters as well. Uh, you know, even someone like Ben, who you might say ends up being a becoming a worse character, or at least making more mistakes than he did the previous four seasons still undergoes some sense of development. And so I really do feel like this is a season that fires on all cylinders, whether it's from a plot perspective, a character perspective, or both. Yeah, I think that that's fair. Um, You know, to say, like, the best is so hard because it's lost, so the whole thing is the best. But I think that there's just, like, there's a a tightness to season five that um, is really, really evident. Uh, I just think that there's a, there's a, a a big clarity of vision or clarity of vibe is the thing that I've been saying recently uh, that I think is very, very present in season five and is supremely impressive to me. Um, but let's pick it apart a tiny bit from your friend and mine, Dallin Servo, who has reported that we got four dudes in the incident, which brings us to 241 times the word dude has been said Holy through five moly. seasons of Lost. Uh, we're, we're, go, we're getting to 250 by the end of the series, oh, for sure. Oh, 250 for sure. I don't know that we're going to crack 300. Um, no, well, no, considering that we have, what, like, a, a little bit over a dozen episodes left? Like, yeah. that's going to be a heavy amount of dudes every episode. It's going to be tough. Uh, so, Down, the dude tracker, uh, asks us, now that we've seen all the season cliffhangers, can you rank all five? Mike, how would you rank the five cliffhangers Ooh. to the seasons of Lost so far? Obviously, we have to go back number one. We have to go back number one. Let's let's I, let's sort of start with the extremes. Uh, I, we talked about this a lot during Live Together, Die Alone. I still think it's the worst cliffhanger. 
Uh, I know that it's going to bring us Penny's boat, but it, I think it's still a little bit too it's, WTF out of left field. It's also just like a relative scale. Uh, like the weakest tier is still pretty great. I agree that it's season two. I think that it has to be by default just because the others are so WTF. Like one of them is going like, is it Locke in the coffin? That's a main character. Right, he shouldn't yeah. be in there. Is it what's in the hatch? That's super frustrating, but it's a historic pop culture moment. Is it? We just blew up a nuclear bomb and maybe everyone's dead and we don't know what the hell is going to happen to the show. So I just I don't I don't think I just don't think that the snow globe and the Miss Widmore is <laughs> us quite measures up even though it's yeah. great. Portuguese Matthew Fox, I'm so sorry you finish at number 5 <laughs> right now. But yeah, those middle <laughs> 5, those middle 3 are so tough to discern. I think maybe it's recency bias. I might put the incident up there because of the way it's sequenced where we get Jacob being killed right into everything going on with the bomb, as opposed to like, uh, as much as I love Exodus, my favorite lost episode of all time, you know, the taking of Walt takes place before the final act. And the entire final act is beautiful, but it is sort of like a montage through everyone as they get on 815. I think maybe if it was Walt getting kidnapped, immediately going into the hatch, blowing up, and then looking down the ladder, that might have more of a competition so I might go from top to bottom here, three, five, four, one, two. Three, five, four, one, two. Uh, I think I, I I can't argue with that. I think I think the historic quality of uh, the what's in the hatch is always going to be something that lifts for me. So I think yeah. I think I I would probably be inclined to say. Uh, three one five four two, but I don't know. It's it's really tough. I think the thing is is that three is the top, two is the bottom. The other three can like go in almost any order, but I don't yep. think that you're doing it right if you do it another way. At least it's my opinion. Just my opinion. Just one person's yeah, opinion. Yeah, and then send us your stuff. Obviously, you know we're not going to have a feedback show uh, as an addendum to the feedback show, but I would love to hear from the hatchlings as to how they would rank the cliffhangers because we got no more after this. There is a, you know, maybe people thought there was a cliffhanger in season six because they had a lot of questions about what the hell they just watched, but we don't have any more finale cliffhangers. These are the cliffhangers. Um, This is a sort of non sequitur, uh, but a huge thanks to the Ben behind the curtain and Brendan Fitzpatrick for collating the feedback for this episode of Down the Hatch. And I think that they were like, we've got this great story and I don't know where to fit it. Let's just put this at the top. And I'm really glad they did because when I saw this feedback email come through, I definitely wanted to make sure that we got to it. And I wasn't entirely sure where we were going to get to it. It's just a great story of someone encountering a member of the Dharma Initiative out in the wild. Whoa! Uh, Wait, is this back in the 70s? uh, No, this was back, uh, I would guess this is 2018. Uh, This is from Brandon. Brandon says, I have a story to share about the time I ran into one of the lost cast members in the wild. And it would fill me with incredible joy if you could read my story on air. Brandon, consider it done. Uh, Brandon continues. This is when I went to see the midnight screening of Avengers Infinity War. I was wearing my Dharma Initiative t-shirt and sitting at the end of a row. Suddenly, an older gentleman with gray hair walked up to the row and started eyeing me up and down. I was about to get out of my seat and let him pass by when he made a snarky remark saying, of course I'd be in this row. I was taken Mm. aback by this stranger before realizing that the stranger in question was none other than character actor Patrick Fischler, a.k.a. Phil, 
security lackey for the Dharma Initiative in Season 5, and that he was just making an innocent comment about my Dharma Initiative t-shirt because he was literally in the Dharma Initiative. Uh, wow. That's great. I don't- I don't. Yeah, that that is an amazing encounter. But I'm I'm at an impasse, Josh, because I don't know how much I should be judging Patrick Fischler by his comment. Yeah. Uh, you know, it I, I wonder how much he gets it because I guess that sort of leads into my opinion of it. Because I think you could certainly be of the opinion of like, God, what a jerk to not be like, oh, that's so cool, and so to be like, oh, of course it's this row. Uh, maybe you know his hair has gone gray at this point. Maybe he feels like he's just been inundated with so many oh were you in the dharma initiative questions yeah, that I he think just it's, doesn't I think, want to encounter it anymore i kind of feel like it's playful right of like uh like he's like act he's playing phil in this moment it's like of course mm. it, of course i'd be here uh and then like assuming if this guy has a dharma initiative t-shirt the odds are high that he's gonna recognize this dude as phil and it's gonna have like sort of like this like Bill Murray noogied me in the bathroom type yeah, story exactly. to pass and, along. And said nobody would ever, uh, nobody will believe you. Yeah. How many people, by the way, do you think Bill Murray has noogied over the course of the years? I don't think, my leading theory is that it's not Bill Murray, it's Brian Doyle Murray, and he's blaming <laughs> it on his brother. Oh, man. Uh, from Avzinensky, uh, with some questions about the rules of time travel and free will on Lost, Av writes in, In Flashes Before Your Eyes, Eloise explains to Desmond that the rules are not only whatever happened happened, but also whatever will happen will happen, as in the universe has a way of course correcting. If she warned the man in the red shoes about the scaffolding, he'd be hit by a taxi the next day. The issue with that formulation is that whatever will happen will happen only applies from a certain perspective, namely the dead guy. What about the guy who hits him with the car? In one version, he kills a guy, and in the other, it's an uneventful day. So for him, reality is completely changed. Does this mean that things can be changed unless the universe views it as a main story point? That's main in quotes. Um, does this principle also apply to the past? Did Saeed always shoot Ben? Did Eloise always shoot Daniel? Did Jack always cause the incident? Which of these are main stories that the universe will course correct for and ensure? And which are extraneous details that can be changed? I love this question because this is something we spoke about actually back in Flashes Before Your Eyes. And what Av is alluding to is something that I, I personally subscribe to, right? This idea of macro versus micro events. I guess he refers to them as more so main story points. It's sort of like time travel can be like skiing down a mountain where you can do whatever you want within the lane lines. But then once you cross the lane lines, then something has sufficiently changed. And I think as weird as it is to be like, yes, this person's life matters and this person doesn't, we're going to be talking about Jacob, who sort of implies that, right? And so that as sort of the MO of loss that I could understand why they have that perspective as odd as it is to say, well, look, the man in the red shoes had an incredibly important event, you know, happen. The person driving might not. So yes, their life may change, but it stays within those lane lines, but you know, if something changes for the man in the red shoes, then everything changes. Right. The other thing, too, is that guy doesn't run over the man in the red shoes, probably runs over somebody else. He's probably just a trash driver and someone yeah. was getting hit by this dude. Exactly. Uh, Maybe it's someone in, like, a blue hat. Yeah. Hopefully it's not Nadia. Oh, no. What if it was? Yeah, he lives... He drove to- all the way... He drove all the way across the ocean years later... 
and decided to run over Nadia. Yeah, and he got a little big for his britches, this driver, right? Because, like, after you're able to successfully drive across the ocean, across the sea, as it were, you're like, well, that's not something that I should uh, literally be able to do. That I drove exactly across like- this body of water. And then after that, you're going from London, you go across the sea driving on the water. I want to be very clear that that's what I mean. That like the exactly. wheels wheels on water, Mike, is what I'm talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. You drive across the sea, you wind up where? In like New York? You're like, oh my God, this is incredible. And then like, where do you go next? You got to keep going. You go across the country. You've done a cross-country United States road trip in addition to driving from London to New York, across the Atlantic, and then, you know, what's going to stop you? You're, oh, no, you've run into it. You've run over a human being. You know? Now, the shaggy dog if, story. Exactly. But what if we are to say that the, the, the speciality does not come from the person within the car, but the car itself? What mm. if we're dealing with some sort of Christine-like yeah, situation here? Oh, well, hopefully, it's, uh, is, is it an Optimus Prime, right? You want it to mm. be an Autobot, I think. I know, it might be a Decepticon, considering if it, run, if it, you know, if it was going to run over a guy with uh, the red shoes. Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe it's like, it's some sort of robot car with some sort of messianic complex of like, I could go run over water. I will conquer all the humans one heartbreaking love at a time. Do you think Christine was a Decepticon? You know what? I think she was. She might have been a robot in disguise. I believe Stephen King uh, said that what she was like possessed by the devil. But you know, he's a he was really trying to shill out. Whoa, for those possessed toys, by right? the devil! What if the car is Mephisto? Oh my God, Mephisto confirmed it was all car right, all gotta, along. Got to get back on track somehow. Uh, continuing uh, with the Eloise Hawking stuff, and now getting into some more episode specific feedback from across the season. Uh, Dallin Serva once again asking asking us about Eloise Haw- Hawking. Um, Dallin says Eloise is doing a lot to help Jack on his mission because she believes it can change the timeline and save her son. Does Eloise send Daniel to the island to make sure the timeline stays the same? Or does she send him to the island because he has to go to the island to change the timeline? Um, interesting. So does does huh. does Eloise think that perhaps Daniel is going to succeed in changing the timeline uh, by going back? Like, is it less? I mean, we've talked about this, right? Like, is it that she is sending him to his death because the timeline must be preserved at all costs in the timeline? It's the sacred timeline to keep talking about the MCU. Or is it because like she feels her only chance at saving her son from this horrible fate is for this plan to reverse fate itself to go through and that she has been waiting on pins and needles for all of these years to find out if Jack Shepard blowing up that nuclear uh, nuclear bomb actually paid off her son's plot? Yeah, I don't know. I never had that read that she was sending Jack and everyone back to save her son. I thought it was more so the tragic circumstances of it has to be done. She saw Jack in the 70s. Therefore, she knows that he has to go back there and he has to get on the plane, even if that's going to lead to the events that leads to her son's death. I mean, it would give her a lot more agency to be able to do that. But then I feel like that also flies in the face of what Av was just talking about, right? If she's talking about how you can't cross the uh, can't cross the threshold, the past is the past. For her to just be in such defiance about that in such an advanced age, despite what she called told Desmond, is hopeful. Yet I would bargain saying a bit out of character. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I think like it could be a couple of things, right? Where it's like 
she has to send Faraday back and she has to send Jack and everybody back because that is what happened. She encountered all of them there. She killed her son in that moment. Like all of that goes down. So like um, the bomb goes off and one of two things potentially happens. Um, Thing one is the timeline is preserved. And so things don't spiral ridiculously out of control. Let's say she's an agent of Jacob in some capacity, maybe like, She's in league with Jacob to the point of like, trust me, we have to do this. And uh, there's a contingency plan and whatever happens once they're vaulted into the future. That's the stuff we do not yet know how to predict. But that is the stuff that is where all of this will finally be decided. Um, Either way, like that could be like that could be a piece of it. Or she's like, I mean, ideally, they blow up this nuclear bomb and totally rewrite history. And my son is alive. Like, I think like those two things could coexist in um, mm. Eloise's intentions. Is that the Saeed thing, right? Of like, win, win. If it happens, we continue the timeline. Right. If, if they're able to change it, then like, whoop de do. Yeah. Uh, either, either this works or we're out of our misery. Um, moving on, looking at events from Lafleur. Uh, remember the truce, I do. Uh, yeah. I specifically remember all of the fantastic uh, legal hatchlings that have followed up with breakdowns of the truce. Yes. I don't believe, I believe we're going to be hearing from Derek Whitmy here, but I also know the great Professor Strunk, a prolific feedback artist on everything is super in particular here on Post Show Recaps, also gave his legalese as well. So this is this is why the hatchlings are awesome. 100%. So freaking awesome to be like, hey, can you consult on this completely fictitious document and see who had the better deal here? Yes. Uh, so this came our way from Derek Whitmire, who uh, comes comes our way with a preface. Derek says, I don't frequently work with contracts, and my grade in my contracts course was my worst in law school, but I am a fairly new attorney and lover of the show, so I took up the call to arms to analyze the truce from a legal point of view. Uh, Derek says that the language of the truce is suspect. Both sides are instructed to refrain. <laughs> truce is sus. Yeah, the, tru- the truce is sus. Uh, that should be the tagline for the Bloom Files. The truth is sus. <laughs> Uh, but that's su- gonna be so out of fashion, though. In like six months, like, oh, you're still talking about sus. What's I wrong know. with you? Uh, both sides are instructed to refrain from doing many of the prohibited behaviors. Generally, when a document is trying to make clear someone is to act a certain way, it uses stronger language like "must." Hard to say if either side sees this wording as having wiggle room, aha, or if they both understand <laughs> these to be absolute conditions. Richard brings up an interesting and unsettling point when he asks for clarification on what counts as war materials. Is he taking a shot at the Dharma submarine? Is he alluding to the poison gas on the island? I agree with Richard that good speed is getting redundant by the end. As for which side comes out ahead, I think if you include Richard's counters and assume everything is otherwise agreed to as we read it, then the others definitely threw their weight around here. Yeah, and I think now that we have watched season five back and we're sort of bidding adieu to the 70s, I mean... It does look like when it comes to this sort of armistice, temporarily speaking, between the DI and the others, the others definitely have the upper hand. And I think it's because they have home field advantage from that perspective. And so I think that's reflected in this document, too, where Richard obviously knows the law of the land much more and I think is able to throw his weight around, uh, as Derek said, to be able to, I think, uh, get, get some stuff out of the DI that were just sort of intruders coming in and saying, hey, can we use your stuff to drill into it for a second? 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Let's move on to Dead is Dead. This is the Great Smoke Monster episode where he just totally uh, commandeers Benjamin Linus and makes him his lackey, John Loki's lackey, for the rest of the season. There's a little bit of confusion about the timeline, considering mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. we saw in Namaste uh, and uh, Christian Shepard being at the barracks with Son and Frank and then how, you know, all of this stuff. So, Andrew, you attempted to put a timeline together uh, to kind of clarify how this plays out for anyone who's confused, i.e. potentially you and myself, Mike, um, from Andrew. Um, step one, Ajira crashes to the island. Step two, Ben is knocked unconscious. Step three, Son and Frank paddle to the main island and encounter Christian at night. Step four, Christian learns Locke's body is back and boogies over to Hydra and takes over Locke's body. Step five, morning comes and Locke is discovered and enjoys his mango. There's no two places at one one's problem. Maybe I missed something and I'm totally wrong. I think the only thing that, Andrew, maybe you, you missed or at least like a point of confusion for people is, so what? Son and Frank just hunker down in the barracks for right. like a full 24 hours waiting. I think it's like, it's if, if anything, it's sort of like uh, like... Uh, cinematically confusing that we leave yeah. them that we leave them at night in the barracks. We return at night. They're in the barracks, and so we're supposed to just assume that like a day passed. You know, uh, it's it, like that's I think where we get a little bit a little bit wonky. I think at best, at the most charitable, I think that this is a little bit sloppy still. Exactly. It very much reeks to me of the sitcom trope of two dates at once, right? And like constantly changing clothes and darting between. Like if that's what John Loki is truly trying to do. It might be a bit too much. Maybe he should be more just focused in one specific territory. But yeah, I mean, listen, I think one of the big takeaways from this podcast rewatch of season five is, of course, your brilliant nuclear option. Uh, And I do think that maybe reordering these things helps a little bit because, like, for example, separating Namaste from Dead is Dead by a number of episodes really muddles things further, considering that at that point we go back in time and then apparently meet up with where they met up. Yeah, uh, I think it it 
it ultimately plays totally fine for me. Like I don't, I don't like have too much of a hang up on it, but it's very notable. And I think that like Andrew, I think your timeline makes sense. I just think that the way that the show cuts it and presents it makes it confusing. Um, so that's, that's where I, I land with it from alt Jakey. Uh, uh, alt Jakey re- is reacting to when we talked about that moment, where Smokey John Locke says, I think this is the best mango I've ever eaten. Alt Jakey says, I take this to mean that it's the first time in ages he's been actually able to taste food. Alana mm. later confirms that Smokey is stuck like that now, meaning that uh, meaning stuck in Locke's body, but we'll still see Smokey take the form of Christian and Alex throughout the rest of the season. So what exactly is it that binds the man in black to Locke? Is it Jacob's death? Was it just a really, really good mango? Was he just mm. satisfied that his master plan actually worked i think as far as like what locks the man in black to lock i think it's jacob's death uh because this is the moment where he's no longer able to shape shift anymore Um, right because into that perspective like i think when he's been able to embody other people like when he's christian shepherd he's not like oh that's a good cigarette i do think that there's some sort of threshold that he passes after jacob dies of like okay now it's sort of like the symbiote is merging with the persona that it's inhabiting yeah, he seems to like uh he he's not going to be able to turn into other people anymore. He'll still be able to access smoke monster form, but he will not be able to be another humanoid person um for the rest of Lost. He is stuck this way. Um but he is stuck shape- this way. But he is he is still able to shapeshift after he starts the John Locke con and he's eating that mango and moments after eating that mango you know hours after eating it he's gonna be christian shepherd again he'll be alex russo uh so i still i still tie the mango thing to like being like his experience through Locke's body like through like taking on like Locke's likeness not just his body but like (laughs) or or, i i I really think it's an exercise of like okay what would john Locke say right now oh this is a juicy mango he's like work on it better dude okay you're not doing a good job here playing john Locke. but he like talks to he talks to jacob in the incident about i just ate type stuff so like you know he's eating to some degree but is it just like eating like people and like eating like uh enmity and stuff like that i don't know yeah uh whatever uh this is great this is for some like it hot this comes our way from great patron of Posha Recaps, Josh Lemer, who is not a big Lost fan, actually, uh, but, okay. w- but was informed uh, that in Some Like It Hoth, or reminded that in Some Like It Hoth, uh, Hurley uh, is trying to rewrite Star Wars because the Ewoks suck, dude. Uh, Josh wrote in uh, uh, and said, I am, uh, I am a vehement Ewok defender. I know what the traditional anti-Ewok points are. I'm here to counter them. Uh, one, the Ewoks are always a competent threat. At no point in Return of the Jedi were they ever presented as anything but completely competent warriors who could hold their own. They're a reasonable threat towards the heroes at the beginning before things get cleared up, and they provide a formidable threat towards the Empire at the end. Uh, point two, the Ewoks are adorable and cute and cuddly and popular with children, and this is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. They're endearing, and the film doesn't pull its punches. We see them bravely charge into battle. We see some of them die. They have depths and tragedies that excel <laughs> <laughs> that excelled in past traditional marketing play characters. For some reason, I'm imagining Josh, the rhyming that I Josh managed for you to bang on the table and you say, they have depths and tragedies, damn it. it. Yeah, this is very J. Jonah Jameson defending the Ewoks. I love it. Uh, the Ewoks helping take down the Empire forces that try to invade Endor makes perfect sense. It's perhaps the most frustrating criticism of them all. Uh, going back to point one, at no point are they ever undersold as a prominent threat. They were always presented as dangerous fighters, and if you thought otherwise, 
Christ, you made the same mistake the Empire did. Uh, furthermore, this has an enormous basis in wartime history. There are multiple examples of local guerrilla forces triumphing against invading foreign forces. The American Revolution and the Vietnam War are primary examples. And then four, this is the best. Uh, the Ewoks music is absolutely banging. Of course, everyone remembers and loves Yub Nub, but the special edition Return of the Jedi Ewok celebration song is also a banger. Proving that Ewoks are masters of music in addition to being adorable, badass warriors. What's not to like? Fair right, well, enough. That, that, that concludes uh, this edition of uh, A Long Time to Go, a podcast within a lost oh, podcast. Oh my god, I love it. I love well, it. <laughs> uh, here's, here's what I realized, though, reading through Josh's incredibly accurate and impassioned plea here. Is Hurley a self-hating Ewok? A uh, self-hating Ewok. Because I think a lot of the stuff that, like, the way he's describing Ewok sounds like Hurley's sort of, like, conflict yeah, style. Yeah, it does. And I wonder if it's a thing of, like, oh, dude, you know, Ewoks suck, they're not as badass, but it's like, Hurley, take a look in the mirror. It's not just the hair. You're the Ewok. Yeah. Hurley is the best. You know, like, he's the absolute best. We absolutely love Hurley. He loves all the fun stuff that we love. Uh, but I think it's also possible that at the same time that his opinions are bad, dude. Uh, yeah. And that's okay. That's fine. Uh, that's all right. I love Josh's defense of the Ewoks. That was that was incredible. That was a fantastic piece all of All right. Feedback. So if we're talking about a defense of Ewoks from an Ewok lover... Let's talk about the history of Bram, who is uh, not introduced in Sunlight at Hoth, but is prominent in Sunlight at Hoth when he kidnaps Miles from the perspective of Bram. Uh, Oh, okay. so, So Bram writes in and says, I would really just like for you guys to understand my relationship to Bram the character. Bram is not a name that most people have. I'm the same age as Josh, and I've never met another Bram. So you can imagine my shock and utter delight in 2009 when a random character on my absolute favorite show turns to Miles and says, my name's Bram. Uh, This is the point where it should become clear that the person who's writing in is not actually Bram from Lost, but is, in fact, uh, someone named Bram. Uh, Yes, uh, I wonder if it's Bram from Sharon Lois and Bram. Remember that trio? I don't think so. I don't think so. Bram continues and says, what? A character named Bram on any network show, let alone the best show ever, and he's seemingly got this really cool story and mission? I was so pumped. Bram on Lost. This guy had better be amazing. And then he's awful. One of the worst characters on the show. Super useless. Really snippy. And then he dies in a really meta Bram Stoker joke with a stake to the heart like a vampire. This is probably the only time a character on a popular show will ever be named Bram. At least for another generation or so. So join me in the other generously numbered 10 Brams in the world who care. (laughs) In mourning a character with an awesome name who failed us. Gaze upon the legacy of my name and despair. There Uh, are dozens of us Brams. Dozens. Bram, I am going to make it my mission that when when the pivot is complete and I start writing my own nonsense and putting it out there... Uh, whether it's a book or a comic or whatever, I will I will make sure that there is an incredible, prominent character named Bram. You have my mm-hmm. solemn vow. I will do this for you. This I is think what you we need will to make do. Him, you need to make him a Brammy Sue as well. Like he has to be the most talented, prolific, smart character in the world, just to like counterbalance the Bram that was experienced on Lost. We, we've got to have that equal going on. Yes. Uh so it's uh it's a thing that I'm 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 pledging to you Bram. We will do justice for Bram. 
That was a delight to read. Uh, a lot of feedback on the variable. No surprise. Um, great, uh, great feedback from the the legendary Jim Fells. Jim writes in, I'd love to know how and when Faraday changed his mind about being able to change the future. He suddenly becomes so passionate about this new idea that he storms the other's camps, guns ablazing. I agree with Jim. I do. I yeah. do think like um, you, you would have loved to have seen uh, something from Ann Arbor, maybe in the variable episode itself. Like it is just such a jump. Um, I think we've talked about this to a certain extent. Uh, are you able to pull that off, though, and still maintain sort of like the surprise of Daniel's return and then the surprise with his swift exit? I don't know. But it is it is definitely something that would would have been nice to see. Could it be something where we see him in Ann Arbor? He overhears or is brought in on the Swan Station. And that's when things click in his mind. Right. Because that seems to be the M.O. is like he comes in and says, Oh yeah, the Swan Station. He researches everything he knows about it and basically says this is what this is what it hinges upon. Maybe it's just something as small as that, but I I think it's something you could feasibly throw into the variable. You don't need to put it into some like it hoth to blow the surprise of him getting off the sub. But considering how much we sort of darted through Daniel's life in the variable anyway, I th- I think you could throw something in there if you had the time. Yeah, I wonder was it a mistake to send Daniel off the island? Like mm. at all? Uh, like, I mean, should, he I, have, I, should he have stayed? Should he have stayed? I personally agree. I think looking back on it, it still is really strange to me. Just the, the I think one of the stranger things of this season is how some of these characters take a backseat. I've talked about it before about how even watching it back, I'm still not a huge fan of the Desmond stuff. Sorry, Riley, in season five, just because it is so spotty. He appears in four episodes. Daniel Faraday appears in less episodes, as I mentioned before, than Phil and Redzinski, which sounds really, really strange. I mean, I guess then you'd have to wonder, like, how does he fit into everything else going on? But I do feel like there there could have been a side plot maybe they've written in where he was brought in on the Swan Project alongside Radzinski. And look, I don't want to see any more Radzinski on my screen, but maybe that's more of an access point to see the epiphany from Daniel Faraday rather than him showing up. You do lose the surprise of like, oh, Daniel Faraday's back. He's here to stay. Oh, he's not here to stay. But... I don't know. I, I'll admit, from the Namaste stuff onwards, I kind of missed having him on the island. Uh, a bunch of people had asked, Eric Divestein included, as well as Megan Cullen, um, why Daniel Faraday doesn't have the same last name as either of his parents, Eloise Hawking or Charles Widmore. Um, do you think that, like, uh, she, like, Eloise doesn't want to tell Daniel about uh, about Charles Widmore? And so she's mm. just like, uh, well, I guess she wouldn't just come up with a name. She's got the journal. His name is Daniel Faraday because it's always Daniel Faraday, right? It's yeah, like time maybe, loopy stuff. Was that the first indicator? Was like, I guess I have to name him Daniel Faraday from that perspective. She essentially like creates her own name. It's like the, the picture of the two hands drawing each other at once. Outside of that, I mean, I could see how maybe if there's some symbolism in her wanting to start off her son on a new note, right, to like, divorce him from everything that happened on the island up to that point to not give him a last name of either herself or Charles Widmore to essentially say, go forge your own path, only to realize, sadly, that his path always led back to the island. Yeah. Um, uh, I think I think that that tracks. I think, like, she see, you see the name, you're, you're committing to this time loopy stuff, uh, then, like, you know, it, it then, like, probably gets her to the place where, like, she's already in a bad way with Chucky Wids, 
So maybe she's like, well, he's not going to be part of the picture at all. I'm just going to change his name. Uh, um, his dad was also a Daniel Faraday. Uh, and so that is why he is also named Daniel Faraday. And he's out of the picture. Yeah. I do wonder what the story was that she gave poor. Because, again, like it was far from a loving relationship. So I wonder what the story was that he like died. Oh, did he get run over by the murderous car robot? Oh, yeah. Could be. Could be. Yeah. Uh, maybe that was the man in the red shoes. Ooh, uh, see that man? That man is Daniel Faraday's yeah, father. Yeah. Uh, for the great Luke Freezy, Luke writes in, uh, I can't help but feel disappointed with how Daniel's arc concludes. Don't get me wrong, I'm captivated by the tragedy of it all. I'm simply sad that Faraday never really gets to be the very major character that he appears slated to be in his first appearance. Do you guys feel that the twist at the end of the variable was worth prematurely concluding what could have been a very satisfying arc in season six? I would have loved to see a character like Daniel bringing exposition and even some answers to the actual science questions that many viewers still had in the final season. Um, I think my answer before I turn it to you, Mike, is like to the point that we had just made, like maybe it was a mistake to like not have him on the island uh, for season five to like have him like leave and go to Ann Arbor. Like, I think it's less to me about like his story is prematurely concluded and more that like, there were there were moments in time that they probably could have capitalized on more um and like it's not not like a deal breaker for me by any stretch of the imagination i still really love the way that they handled the character but as far as like any woulda coulda shoulda there's Mm -hmm. really not a big piece of me that's like i i wish that they had left him alive for the final season i think his death here really amps up the stakes going into the to the final couple of episodes of season five but i think like if there is some woulda coulda shoulda it's maybe that like yeah, he's working with Pierre Chang at the Orchid. He's like doing all the sciencey stuff with the DI. And then he sees Jack and everybody show back up and his story running part and parcel with everything that's happening in like Namaste and he's our you and all of this stuff uh, that we're starting to get to like be with Faraday as he's coming to believe that maybe whatever happened doesn't have to happen. Yeah, I mean, let me just say, I don't think we need Daniel Faraday in the final season. Uh, I know that Luke is saying, like, oh, he could answer some of the scientific questions, but season six is not a sciencey season. Season five was, or at least was trying to be really approaching the sci and sci-fi. Season six is all mysticism. We're dealing with Jacob. We're dealing with the man in black. We're going to go to the temple in the first few episodes. I don't think having Daniel Faraday there to explain things would have necessarily filled his role. If anything, I feel like it almost would have... Uh, two-dimensionalized his character a bit. I mean, Daniel Faraday has a huge season five, right? First, he's sort of is like the initial leader of the group. He's the one to really take charge in Jughead to make sure that bomb gets buried. He ends up losing Charlotte. He gets his one and only big focus episode in season five. I think, honestly, what happens to Daniel Faraday in season five was what I kind of hoped happened to Desmond in season four. Not from a death perspective, but like, this was a natural concluding point for their story, I think if you continued it afterwards just to keep the character around, I think you get diminishing returns. Yeah, I think that that's fair. Um, let's go on to follow the leader. Uh, this is from Snorri Jonsson, uh, who writes, and it says, when Ben gets back to the island and meets Richard for the first time in three years, the only words Richard has for Ben are, what's he doing here? What? The last time Richard saw Ben was in There's No Place Like Home and Richard saved Ben from Kimi. He seemed very loyal to Ben then. What's changed? That's a very good question. I mean, Richard Alpert, 
Richard Alpert does not have a great end to the season. Uh, let's just say that. He's going to have his big coming out moment in coming season out. six. Uh, exactly. But for the time being, like it's just the way he encounters the entire Ben John Loki contingent is uh, pretty doofy at the end of season five. Yeah, uh, I I feel like uh, there's reason to believe that Richard is not the hugest Benjamin Linus fan. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, maybe he could have like advocated harder for Ben to meet Jacob for one. He probably had to like deal with a lot of like uh, Ben being like, "Oh, so you're going off to see your friend, huh? Your special friend?" And Richard's like, "I know you're annoyed, Ben." but I cannot take you. I've, we've gone over this. I'm so sorry. It's not my call. Whatever, Richard. You're not even really my friend, are you? Uh, you, know, you, didn't come to you? You didn't wish me a happy birthday. Yeah, exactly. He like gives him some guff about that. Right? It just so happens to be that today is my birthday. You do remember what those are, don't you? It's not just a, a, a nod at Richard being ageless, but also some shade at Richard having forgotten Ben's birthday. But regardless of that, it should be noted... It does not appear, Mike, that Richard got Ben a birthday gift anyway. So I don't think that they there's I don't think there's a ton of love lost here. Does he help Ben out in the season four finale when he is summoned? Yeah, that's his job. You know, right. he's gotta do his job. Um, but like he says to John Locke, there's like some people who wouldn't mind like a regime change around here. Like it's fairly clear, I think, uh, that Richard doesn't have like a ton of affection for any of the people who have been in that leadership position other than Eloise. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like he seems like, you know, he knocks her out. uh, And like, that feels to me like the move of somebody who like cares if she lives or dies. Uh, You know, if it's Ben and Ben is insisting on going in, he's probably like, your call, boss, you know? Uh, yeah. So I think it actually, like, I, I feel like there is a line to follow of Richard Alpert is not the biggest Benjamin Linus fan. That's his line. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is sort of like a work-friends relationship. And honestly, I don't want to, like, fault this to immortality, but, like, I'm reading uh, some Thor comics, for example, and Thor speaks about how being immortal, you know, you, you almost, like, can't remember all the people who have died, the people you've fallen in love with, the friends you have made, and there's almost, like, a tragedy in living forever. And maybe that's part of it for Richard Alpert that, yes, Benjamin Linus does not necessarily make for the most cuddly person uh, as a coworker and as a friend. But also at the same time, considering everything that Richard has experienced, I would not be surprised if this is just another like dot on this always extending piece of printer paper for him of like, this is just another person. Don't get involved. Don't get invested. Yay. Thank you. Uh, you called on me. I'm so happy you're back. But let me get me more concentrated on the fact that this dead man came back to life. Uh, let's take this once again from Av, who says there's definitely one person who shouldn't have been tricked by the man in black, and that's Richard Alpert. So let's return to one of my favorite new lost questions. Is Richard Alpert smart? Uh, which is something that we talked about earlier in the season. He is centuries old. He might still have like an 18th century mentality to him. Uh, yeah. And also like there is this, uh, there's this myth that you're a kid and suddenly Eureka, you're going to be smart when you're an adult. Cause adults, the grownups know what they're talking about. Got bad news for you. That's not exactly how it works. And Richard could be 200 years old. Mike could still be a total dweeb who doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, oh, 100%. Uh, so this is Av's bullet points on Richard. Uh, he says that Richard knows the smoke monster is able to take the corporeal form of dead people, both from his experience with Isabella and from Ben's experience with his mom. 
He knows that the smoke monster hates Jacob and is obsessed with trying to kill him. He knows that one version of Locke asks him to tell another version of Locke that he has to die. He knows that Ben thinks he killed Locke. Locke even confirms that, yes, he did die. And now Locke is obsessed with being taken to see Jacob, which is a major deviation from protocol and precedent. Uh, Richard should have been able to piece together what's happening or at least uh, or at the very least been more suspicious of Locke and his motives. It's not until the man in black makes a reference to Richard being out of his chains that he realizes what is going on. Um, Yeah, when you when you bullet point it out like that, it doesn't look great. I mean, Richard Alpert, I guess he's a better uh, negotiator than he is a strategist, right? Like, his perception is not necessarily his his key asset we're figuring out. Or, like, you know, it's uh, just because he's ageless doesn't mean he has, like, a great memory. And a lot has happened between the time he met him, uh, met the man in black by uh, the statue and now well but that's and we've also discussed that too right like it's been too long we're trying to figure out like okay was the last time that he saw the man in black really back then were there other smoky interactions i'm not entirely sure i guess that would be an excuse but also richard alpert is not a perfect character he's gonna have a pretty damn good episode coming up in season six but uh i think the the entire onus of the incident is almost like what ob is indicating here which is like demystifying the the people in charge that you think those at the head of the table know exactly what they're doing they don't they are flying blind right now they are no frank lapidus and i think it is both like comforting and frightening to know that i don't know if this is a hot take or not uh so i will just present it as a take okay and then, and well, then i'll you, take the temperature yeah. and you can take the temperature richard albert is a good character that's the take Richard Alpert, he's good. He's a good character. I think he. I think I. I, I think that he is like uh, a notch below great and a notch above fine. I think he's a good character. He's a solid yeah. character. But I think the second we start to try and like infuse like Desmondian levels of like excellence into this guy, that he's another one of those like really special non season one additions to the show. I think that's where I start to just like I, ah. I think he's good. He's definitely a good character. I think, you know, he's a great ingredient to have on the show for sure. But like I'm saying a great ingredient more than character. Right. He's uh, a side dish, not the main dish. He's a, he's like a, he's a side dish that I'm thrilled is on the plate. I'm I'm I would not want this plate of food any other way. But I walk away and I'm not talking about uh, I'm not talking about the braised greens. You know, mm. like I'm glad to have eaten them. Very glad to have eaten them. But they were good. But my God, the, the the entree, that was where it was at. I completely agree. I, I think your take is as cold as Hoff, uh, and yeah. some like it there. I think that this happens with characters like the off- aforementioned Frank Lapidus is very similar, right? Of like, he doesn't necessarily need depth. He plays his role. He comes in, he does his things, and we enjoy him for it. Richard Alpert has actually been a fairly big non-entity for the first five seasons. Really, the this pop near the end of season five is really the biggest he's gotten the entire series so far, maybe except for Cabin Fever. And we're going to build to, I think, Nestor Carbonell becomes a, a series regular in the final season. So it'll be a good take, I think, to revisit once we end the series. But I'm inclined to believe with you, in you. 
He's a, a good supporting character, not a good main character necessarily. Yes, uh, I think that that's that's where I land on it. Um, let's talk about the incident. Uh, we had put out the call once upon a time. We talked about it during our podcast about the incident. Uh, is this the weakest finale? You and I still think Live Together, Die Alone is a weaker episode. Uh, we had some feedback that disagreed, that that believes that the incident good, is the weaker good. season finale. This is from Matt. Uh, Matt wrote it and said, The incident's a great episode, but it is, for me, the weakest finale. One of them has to be last, right? Through the Looking Glass and Exodus are my two favorite episodes, and There's No Place Like Home is top 10. Um, the Jack and Michael storyline and Live Together, Die Alone is kind of stupid, but that episode also has the Desmond flashbacks and the Hatch storyline both of which I find extremely compelling. I was only riveted by the Sawyer-Juliet scene at the end and Ben stabbing Jacob. And I think the more interesting conversations about the bomber and the variable and follow the leader, I just think it lacks the richness the other finales have. And the plot hinges too much on the quadrangle and some questionable motivations. It sounds so negative because I still love the episodes, says Matt. Um, Also, this is from Tony. Tony said, I've been waiting on this one for quite some time, over a year, I think, ever since you stated that Live Together, Die Alone was the worst season finale. The incident is an inferior episode. I laughed out loud multiple times at parts that were not intended to be funny. It comes off as a bad action movie. Shootouts, electromagnetic actions, a five-minute fistfight, smashing an atomic bomb from the 1950s with a rock. Would Rosinski and Phil and company really be so gung-ho? I thought they were scientists. And the fight between Jack and Sawyer, okay, I get it. But the length of the fight is ridiculous. I feel at times that the incident is both cartoony and corny. Happy to hear your thoughts on the comparison of these two episodes. Uh, Tony adds, P.S. Saul is going to be so pissed when he shows up to the work site. So many (gasps) broken drill bits. Who melted my drill? (laughs) I think I've been watching so much Survivor Pearl Islands, I'm getting very much like Rupert vibe. Who voted for my drill? Yeah. Uh, so that's the drill from Tony. The drill from Matt. Want to give voice to those opinions. Uh, I I hear you. I don't fully yeah. agree on all of it, but it is good to give voice to that stuff. This is from Riley, who kind of pushes in as well on the incident. Uh, Riley writes and says, I have a lot of criti- criticism of the fe- finale, but a personal reason um, I have an issue with it is uh, of why it's a weak finale for me is how I interpret the ending of The Variable. The tragic ending of The Variable, in my mind, is that it outright confirms to me that they can't change the past, that Daniel was wrong, and that whatever happened, happened. So I never bought the push in that finale that Jack and the gang could actually change the past. This felt just like an epilogue to The Variable. The character Hmm. beats in it are wonderful, but the plot for me is just fine. It's so interesting. I guess this, this comes back to because I know Riley was someone that was also like, you know, one of the reasons why I really enjoyed the Desmond arc in season five and six is because... I knew that he was going to come back. Whereas I think my disappointment comes from the fact that I didn't think he needed to come back. I think this just comes down to like expectations, right? Like I, I remember at least at the time I did not necessarily think, okay, the variable means this, which means they can't change anything. I I still think at the time I watched it, there were exciting stakes behind this. Maybe it's because I was buying into that Jack hype, but him saying I've never been sure about anything more in my life really got me drinking that Kool-Aid. For a second, to the point where, like, I still do hold my breath for a second. And Giacchino does a great job with the dropping of the bomb and everyone preparing for something to happen, only for something very different to happen. I could understand from that perspective, though, if you're coming in being like, well, we know it isn't going to work, that it feels all fruitless in retrospect. But also, I will say, to sort of counter Riley's point, you know, to echo his last sentence, the character beats in it are wonderful, but the plot is just fine for me. 
the character beats in it are wonderful. And that's, at the end of the day, what I watch the show for. Uh, I've talked about this many times in the past on the podcast. I will usually give bumps to character-focused episodes that might be a bit weaker to plot episodes that don't give much for me in terms of characters. Hello, namaste. And so that's just my personal criteria. And that's another reason why I put season five above season two in terms of finales is the character stuff, in my opinion, is just incredibly rich that I can forgive some plot foibles as opposed to live together, die alone, where the Desmond stuff is good, but I do find a bit of it, particularly in the first half, a bit aimless with character stuff that had, did not have me feeling as invested as the group in season five. Uh, the other thing, too, though, is like even if you don't believe that the nuclear bomb going off is going to change the course of history uh, because of like the variable plan, that this is not going to undo everything, they're still blowing up a nuclear bomb. like and, and Richard Alpert did say in the previous episode, like, they all died. So there is some stakes to be like, oh, we could be watching these five characters blow themselves like up not right gonna, now. They're not going to die, probably, because they still have another season of this show to go. But, like, what the hell are they doing? If they blow up a nuclear bomb, like, what does that do? Uh, so I still think that, like, I I feel like the tension is still there. It's like a... Are they going to pull this off? And if they don't, ay ay ay. Like I think like that is all very much uh in in play. Um let's talk about other aspects of the finale. Joanne the Pistons fan, not a fan of how things shake out for Juliet in the finale. Uh Joanne says I hate everything about this episode for Juliet. It's such a weak reductive ending for one of the most badass compelling characters on the show. I understand she felt jealous of Sawyer looking at Kate, but the jump to wanting to set off a hydrogen bomb is a ridiculously extreme overreaction. Juliet immediately wants to throw away her relationship so that it never existed, and she wants to do this by gambling that a hydrogen bomb is going to change the space-time continuum. I'll never buy that this character quickly agreed to detonate a mother-flipping hydrogen bomb because she's jealous about a boy. Uh, I think that that's very well said uh, by Joanne, and I think speaks to what I was talking about last week, was like, uh, some of these characters just like get on board with it and like i don't know that it's in their interests to like kate as well you know i think that's actually again something that has in common in my opinion with live together die alone it's like okay it it has to end with sawyer and kate and jack being captured by the others when we have michael giving up the ghost and it's like all right i guess we keep going right Uh, it's ironic enough that both those episodes have it in common of okay we have this sent this this end place for these characters to get us into the next season how do we get there? We only have a certain number of pages. We'll just sort of yada yada through motivation. Yeah, I think like uh, this episode and Live, to- Live Together, Die Alone both have like some plotting that's really rough around the edges. Uh, I think like the question of which of the two is weaker than the other um, is uh, a little bit of like an irrelevant question uh, when like the reality is like these are the two weakest season finales. Mm-hmm. Like that's the objective truth, as far as I'm concerned. It's like, uh, it's it's like these two are are bringing up the the anchor, uh, for myriad reasons. One could be above the other, uh, but they're both. I think of the of the six finales, these are the sloppiest two, uh, without a doubt, as far as I'm concerned. Well, let um, me bring in an, another other here because uh, we mentioned, you know, the, the the shooting script that came in from Damon Lindelof from the interview he did on the Hatch podcast with Sammy Roth and Rosie Murphy. The Ben Behind the Curtain pulled a certain excerpt from that interview, which he highly recommends everyone listen to, that I think gives at least a bit of an answer as to what they do with Juliet in this episode. Uh, and again, 
your mileage may vary as to whether you take this as a legitimate argument, but from Damon's mouth, he says, I think that, unfortunately for the characters, they have to make bad decisions in order for there to be drama. If it's a legitimate criticism that Juliet as a character would not behave that way, then I take the criticism. We're servicing 20 different sets of I wants. If we call a timeout and said, what do you want? And consider what is the answer to that question. That way we could figure out what direction each character was moving in. We wanted each character to have their own agency. But the story itself, we need to get these seven people at the site of the future Swan Hatch. They all need to be there. Sometimes the I wants become victims of where do we need to geographically point them right now? I feel like we did a lot of good work with Juliet in season five, but maybe not as much good work with her in the finale. So yeah, straight to the horse's mouth of just what we were talking about. It was a means to an end. Yeah, uh, and I and I always appreciate. Uh, I I think uh, one of the one of the the central reasons why I love and trust Damon Lindelof as a storyteller is I think like the younger Damon Lindelof, like at the time of Lost, was probably so like work blind and overworked yep. uh, that like we're, we're going to answer everything we prom like over promising type stuff. I think like some wisdom has settled in some other uh, huge television successes at, at the very least creatively since then. Um, and I really, I love him as an interview. I love, I love hearing what he has to say about his own process, but also I think he's like very candid with where he feels things were, uh, things were really great where things yes. were not as great. Uh, like, I think that he's like open to those conversations. Like, I think that he would be, uh, he would be like uh, first on the list. I know that he mentioned this on one of his appearances on the storm. Um, I think at the start of season five about um, like, just like the lack of diversity in the writer's room. And that being something that he has really, really tried to to fix, like both like in terms of like actual, like uh, diversity of like not being just a room filled with white dudes, but also people who like, share similar brains as him and have like similar like pop culture instincts that I think that there's like a ton of that on lost and less so as he goes, he's really like craving, um, you know, a lot of different perspectives as he's moving forward creatively. Um, so I, I appreciate where he's coming from, from with this. I think that, uh, that assessment of like a lot of good work with Juliet in season five, not such great work with Juliet in the finale, I think is an accurate assessment. Which is another reason, again, why I talked about last week how another reason why I'm not a huge fan of the incident is because it sort of lacks that, that ensemble quality, right? Even with something like There's No Place Like Home, which granted had three hours instead of two, it felt like everyone had a reason as to why they went where they went, where they didn't necessarily end the incident. But just to piggyback off of what you said, I mean, Damon Lindelof is an incredibly inspiring creative to me, specifically in the manner of like how he looks at his own work. You know, he looks at himself as like a constantly changing figure that the Damon from 12 years ago is not going to be the Damon of today. And he really picks up things from everything that he experiences and incorporates that into the next thing he does. And and I know that's a way that I like to approach life. Uh, You know, it might be hopeless optimism, but I always try to look at, you know, every disappointment as an opportunity to learn Uh, every mistake as a situation where I, I can incorporate that into knowledge about the world. And I, I really appreciate that Damon shares a very similar mindset of, I made mistakes in the past. Look, I'm not going to be that filmmaker that completely doubles down on all the foibles I made uh, for a project I did 20 years ago. I learned from it. I'm looking around me and I'm trying to incorporate it in ways to make myself a better creative person and a better human being. And that to me is incredibly inspiring. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, let's talk about some more stuff from, uh, from Dave Baker. Dave writes in, uh, did Jacob visit everybody from flight 815 who came to the Island or did he just visit those he thought 
had leadership potential. Do you think that there are all of these like uh, deleted, unwritten, unproduced scenes, Mike, of Jacob going around to all of the other people who could have been candidates? Like Dawson is a name on the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Did he say hi to Michael? I mean, he's got to, right? I mean, I guess there's still a question about, like, how omniscient is he? Did he see what was, you know, who were going to be the important ones? But you'd have to imagine he can't be discerning at this point. That's the whole purpose of writing the names on the wall in the first place. Like, that was the shortlist. Now you have to interview all the candidates there. You can't have a shortlist within the shortlist. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I feel like he probably, like, said hi to some of these folks. Probably said hi to Billy and Rodney. Uh, like, I think that these are, they were never on the wall. You know that, uh, actually, I don't know that. Uh, but whether or not we go into that someday is another question entirely. Um, okay. So let's get in to, uh, some more stuff about Jacob and, um, what he knows versus what he does not know. Um, this is from the Ben behind the curtain. Uh, Ben himself writes in and says, I've long considered Jacob to be a kind of Dr. Manhattan figure in Lost, a man who knew everything up until the point of his death. Here's my case for it. Jacob has a lighthouse in which Jack can see his own childhood, suggesting he can see through time. The final six candidates just happen to be the numbers, numbers that would have had a deep impact on the island across time. Perhaps the six Jacob knew would be left at the end of time of his death. Um, Jacob seems entirely unconcerned and perhaps even welcoming of his death and unconcerned in trying to actively control anything about what's happening on the island in stark contrast to the man in black's constant activity. If this theory is true, then I find Jacob's death even more compelling. Despite potentially walking a path devoid of free will, one of his final acts is to tell Ben that he has a choice about what to do, even as he knows it will fail to save his life. But in doing so, perhaps sets Ben on a path that is important to the final defeat of the man in black and the success of Hurley as protector. Okay, Ben kind of got me with that last paragraph, because look, I'll admit to that. If, if this theory is true, like this is maybe one of my pop culture hangups. I'm just not a fan of those types of characters. I'm really not a fan of, like, the omniscient, all-powerful... I think Dr. Manhattan is an exception, but that's the way that he was written and the, the tragedy of that. But usually if it's like, oh, this this character is all-powerful and knows everything, it, it, it really is nothing to write home about for me. But where Ben got me a little bit is then what does his death mean if it's, okay, if we're talking about a path, right? Like, if I know what the path is, I have to be the casualty of it. I have to run myself all over with my own trolley, then let it happen. And that's very, you know, Christ-like as well, right? Uh, to, to sacrifice yourself for the, the good of a better cause. Uh, let's keep going on Jacob from Katie. Uh, Katie writes in and says, what if rather than Jacob showing up... Uh, wrong, at pivotal, show, wrong show, wrong uh, show. What if rather than Jacob showing, what, uh, showing up at pivotal moments to touch the candidates, Jacob was actually causing the pivotal moments? Could he have seen these various people's lives and gone back in time to tweak things to better fit his own plans? Maybe the candidates' lives would have been vastly different, but Jacob stepped in and actually changed the course of their lives onto the path that we now know them. Maybe Sawyer wouldn't have finished his letter, and it wouldn't be there to hold so much power over him. Mm. Maybe Kate would have been scared straight by a call to the police and wouldn't have considered doing anything nefarious. Maybe Jack would have stayed mad at his dad and left to go to a different hospital. Maybe Saeed would have died with Nadia. Maybe Locke would have stayed dead. Maybe Hurley would have continued to refuse any attempt to return to the island. 
maybe Jin and Sun. Well, I'm going to need your help here. I'm not sure what change his involvement <laughs> might have caused. Um, but Jacob stepped in and changed their future into the lives that we've been watching for the last five seasons. As for the touch, maybe that locks in the new reality, may- makes it indelibly permanent. So maybe whatever happened happened, unless you're Jacob is Katie. Uh, and, and, and again, that's that's if that's true, that's why I hate these types of characters, right? That like, yeah. oh, the rules don't apply to me. I can do anything. I'm mystical god man. It's much more compelling to me if the characterization is just like, for lack of a better term, the man behind the curtain of like, I am someone who mystifies themselves, but my persona is much bigger than who I actually am. But it is an interesting idea of like. Uh, you know, him stepping in, actually being the opposite of Uatu, right? I cannot interfere to be like, all right, got to make sure that Sawyer's on that vengeance path. So why don't you take this pen and write this letter? Um, I do think, to Ben's point, canonically, there is a lighthouse with which Jacob can see shit, right? You know, like, he is going to be able to see Jack's childhood home. And I guess, like, is the question, like, that's actually uh, Jack's childhood home, or is he seeing like sideways stuff? Like that's the thing that mm. we can kind of analyze when we get there. But let's say that he can see where people are from. He could see their lives. He could like see pieces of 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 who these people are. Um, then he uh, then like I think like the next step is like he's going out and like he's like if he if he knows that they're going to be here in the seventies, if he knows they're going to be doing this, doing that, then like he's going and like ensuring that this stuff happens right like he's doing the tap he's like doing the tap on the shoulders like yeah i'm gonna like get you to the island i'm gonna make sure that you come here i'm gonna make sure that Mm. this happens so like the 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 whole idea that jacob is a guy who is like doling out free will and that's the choice the man in black servitude versus jacob's free will it is a bogus choice he's a meddler He's for sure a meddler. There's just no question that Jacob is a meddler. Uh, but I think it, he is one of those infuriating types of meddlers. He's like, I'm not meddling. The choice yeah, is or, yours. But exactly. you touched me, dude. Yeah, it's, it's, or it's his choice of like, I'll, listen, I'm meddling, but it's for a good cause. You'll thank me at the end of this. I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, uh, so that's fun. We love that. Uh, let's return to Bram. Uh, Bram is back. <laughs> oh, okay. I was, all right. <laughs> Bram's back. Uh, the best Bram. Bram writes in and says, has it ever been definitively said that the bomb explosion is what brought the Losties back to 2007? I'd always thought so, but what if it was simply Jacob's death that transports them back? Maybe as long as he was alive, the characters would remain in 1977, and the timing of his death just so happened to spare our characters their own self-begotten nuclear annihilation. Yeah, so this was something that was bandied about in the Discord as well, that people did not think that the bomb explosion even happened. I know that, I think Eric Divestein put out like, oh, maybe it was just that like the bomb leaked radioactive, you know, materials. And so that's why they had to to bury it all in concrete. It goes against that that thing that we talked about that was seen in the writer's room, right? That the the scene of Richard Alper watching an explosion. There's a, a scene that was in the finale where Richard Alper tells Son, I watched an explosion happen, everything reduced to ash. I mean, I guess good coincidental timing on their part if that was the case. I mean, that's going to be the big question mark, right? I, I guess I sort of have to hold my opinion until we get to LAX and see what exactly like the transition is for when everyone shows back up together in 2007. As to, was it just random at that point in time? Was it the bomb somehow scientifically possible? Or because Jacob happened to get killed at the exact same point 30 years later, that's what brought them back? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that there's there's certainly the interpretation cuts two ways. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Spencer Y. asks about the loophole. Spencer says, what's your interpretation on the exact terms of the loophole? If the loophole is simply getting someone like Ben to kill Jacob, it's a bit basic and ho-hum, as we'll see the man in black try to trick Richard into killing Jacob and Abiturno. And it didn't seem like that was the first instance of the man in black using an outsider to kill Jacob. Um, I think if the loophole is as simple, Mike, as, uh, as... uh, as I need to find somebody to kill Jacob, then I agree. But I think like sort of like the genius of the plan is the way in which it deals with the candidates, right? Like yeah. um, the man in black is going to know that these people are in the seventies. And so like, he's going to like work overtime to like create those circumstances or lean into those circumstances. However he can, he's going to think that they, that they all die in nuclear annihilation He's got no real reason to think otherwise if he doesn't have a magical lighthouse that shows him future events. <laughs> um, and he also gets John Locke killed. Uh, so he gets all the candidates killed. And then he gets Jacob killed. And so as far as he knows, the candidates are dead. Jacob is dead. And now he's free, except he's wrong, right? Like he, he, yep. he you They're know, coming. Yeah, they're coming, and like that's why he has like that look of like uh, he just like ate a mouthful of crap. He's like, no, yeah, this is the worst mango I've ever eaten. Yeah, this isn't good. Uh, this is a very sour mango. Uh, like I feel like that's what's going on there. So I think like the loophole is like the whole thing, the whole like John, you have to bring everybody back. Everybody's got to come back. All of those candidates, they have to come back, and also you have to die uh, because like if he get if he succeeds and bring them all back. Then they are nuclearly annihilated, mm-hmm. and if John Locke succeeds in dying in the attempt, then he is dead, and he has a way to like pull, uh, like you know, convincing somebody to kill another person is not necessarily an easy thing to do. Uh, it's not necessarily as easy as like go kill that guy. Uh, I'll kill you. Like he needs to convince, like he needs to convince somebody to do it. Going around as Ghost Locke with the authority of Ghost Alex. Uh, is definitely going to be incentive for Ben to go and do the deed. So I think it's a pretty complicated loophole, personally. Mm. And I do wonder if, yeah, it's not as much as like him hiring out a Craigslist killer, right, to come in and kill Jacob. Maybe there is something in Harry Potter spoilers. Uh, sorry, Zach Brooks, uh, if you want to tune be out Be very for the careful, next Zach. You need to skip ahead. I would skip ahead. What do you want to call this, a minute? A minute, sure. Let's say a minute just so to Harry, be safe. Harry Potter spoilers. Skip ahead a minute. 
Avada Kedavra, the killing curse. Notice I didn't kill anyone in saying it because I had no intention behind it, right? That's that's what is uh, said, I believe, in, in uh, what, like, Order of the Phoenix, or I think Half-Blood Prince is like, you have to have meaning behind it when you say it, otherwise the spell doesn't work. Maybe that's part of the loophole as well, of like, it can't just be any trained assassin comes in and picks off Jacob with a sniper rifle. Maybe it's like the person who does it has to have that malice in their eye, the intention to do so. And so that's why he tries to manipulate Richard, and that's why he really does this long tease to eventually get Ben to do what he did. Is like, not only does Ben have to stab Jacob, but he has to do it in a way that, like, it is truly done with the worst of intentions. Yeah, interesting. I think that that uh, segues us pretty nicely into some behind-the-scenes uh, goodness. Ooh, okay. Um, that there's a there's a featurette uh, lost building twenty three and beyond with Michael Emerson um, that around seven and a half minutes or so into the video um, there's some conversation about how the writers tossed around a bunch of different ideas about who ends up killing Jacob that they clearly knew Jacob dies in the season finale but in plotting out the finale they're still throwing names around about who's going to kill him you see on the board uh, some possible names are Locke Son Ben and Albert um, what does the show look like if it's not Ben. Oh, worse, in my opinion. Well, let's let's break down those other three here. Locke obviously couldn't do it because that's the loophole. Uh, unless loophole is like, you just can't do it with your own hands. These aren't my hands. Son, son would have been interesting. I, there is a world where John Loki convinces son, this is the only way you get to see your husband again. And considering, again, badass, hardcore son we saw at the end of season four, beginning of season five, she might do it. I can't think of any reason why Richard Alpert would do it unless, you know, again, spoiler alert for Harry Potter, Zach Brooks, skip ahead another 30 seconds. I made this reference in the Incident podcast, but I'm going to make it again. Unless, going back to Ben's point, if Jacob's pulling a Dumbledore here, knows he has to die, and essentially tells Alpert to be the Snape and be like, you are the one that has to kill me. Those are the only ways I can see that happening. But all of those are much, much weaker reasonings than what happens with Ben here. Um, let's do some more, uh, some more behind the scenes stuff from the incident. Again, that aforementioned, uh, script for the incident that was released via the Hatch podcast. Um, Jim Fells, uh, writes in, when Sawyer asks what motivates Jack, Jack eventually admits that it's Kate. This always felt to me like the scene revealed that Jack was using destiny as an excuse to hide the fact that he was doing this all for Kate. The recently released script, however, suggests the exact opposite that Jack is motivated by destiny, but that he can't say that he is. I much prefer that version, to be honest, and I was wondering how you interpreted this scene. This is how it's written in the the script. Uh, although he does effing feel this is his destiny, his purpose, he also knows that he could never communicate that to Sawyer. But there is one thing he would understand, one thing that they share. And that's what's written in the script before Jack says, I had her, I had her, and I lost her. That's an interesting thing. If he's like, let me find something in common with Sawyer. How about it's this woman that we both like? Interesting choice on Jack's part. I don't think that that translates to the screen. Completely. I completely agree. And it also fails if that's the case, because Sawyer still just like go over the ridge and talk to her. Again, it's the only person that's going to get Sawyer off of Jack's back is Juliet, who's going to go ahead and say, like, let him be. So I, yeah, it it really doesn't translate. I think it's a better read on the character because, yeah, I, I, I don't love that it's ultimately Jack being like, well, I want to do it for Kate. Because as Sawyer points out, like, 
there's a very good chance if you reset the timeline that you and Kate go their separate ways. Yeah. Uh, so it's yeah, it's it's an odd discrepancy, I think, between what Lindelof intended and what came out on the screen. Yes. Um some other fun behind the scenes trivia. Did you know that some like it Hoth spawned a Wikipedia edit war, Mike? What? No. Uh, on April 16th, the, the days following, an edit war ensued on the Empire Strikes Back Wikipedia page that repeatedly saw the screenwriter changed to Hurley Reyes or Hugo Reyes, etc. Uh, there is a, a list of edits uh, that shows all of this. Uh, and uh, that's hysterical that Lost Bands edited the page uh, so that everybody thought that Hugo Reyes. Yeah, I'm looking at a screenshot right now. The screenplay, based on a story by George Lucas, was written by Hugo Reyes during his time spent on an undisclosed island in 1977. That uh, is absolutely incredible. <laughs> and you know the people that dropped off with Lost in Seasons 2 and 3 are like, what the hell? What Did, yeah. did I miss this? Uh, absolutely incredible. Really, really fun. Um, all right, let's get in to... Uh, I guess we got to get into those MVPs and LVPs and the scores and such, Mike. Oh, yeah. So we got, you know, we, we we sketched out the scoring for season five last time. I don't know if there's any real discrepancies, but what I'm really excited, Josh, is to see the uh, the culmination of everything. How is the picture looking five seasons in for some of these main characters? Um, So the Smoke Monster is our season five MVP. Our MVPs currently look like season one MVP is Saeed, Echo season two, Juliet is season three three uh we had that tie between sawyer and frank for season four uh which maybe someday we'll like put the two of them in like a head-to-head grudge match and see who oh comes yeah march out madness uh but for now we will stick with the tie because we were not able to break it um season five it is the smoke monster and he is the mvp of season five by two points um as it stands mike uh, do you want to know your uh, top five baby, or what do you want to do? Top ten? Where do you want? How many? Yeah, what, what? yeah, yeah. I think I think top ten is good. Let's Letterman this uh, because listen, it's a big cast, right? And so I'd like to see how, especially you know Juliet, who was a previous MVP in season three, had a good season. Saeed, previous season MVP, maybe not so much. So I'd love to see going into this final season where a lot of characters are going to be prominent and some are dead. Who, where does the buck stop for some people, and who still has an opportunity to to make their way into the top here? Okay, so uh, starting with number 10, the 10th highest MVP getter. Number 10 on the MVP board. He is, some would say, the star of the show. We open on an eye, we close on an eye. Jack Shepard with 12 oh, MVP wow. points. I'm, su- I'm happily surprised. I think given uh, how sort of like caustic jack can be and and how you know cranky he can be i'm I'm surprised he ended up i'm happily surprised he ended up making the top 10 here yes uh coming in ninth uh is another season one character uh actually in ninth and eighth why don't we talk about them together in ninth place with 14 mvp points it is sun kwan uh oh and in eighth place it is Jin Kwan with Yay! 16 Yay! MVP points. My Kwans are in the top 10. Uh, but what might be interesting is that that eighth place for Jin, it is a tie. It's just not a tie with Sun. Uh, also clocking in with 16 MVP points overall is the season two MVP, Mr. Echo. 
Uh, oh, so we found Jin's true OTP. Sorry, son. Yeah, uh, is in eighth place. Uh, in sixth place, uh, she was a contender for season one and then fizzled out, but she was the person who was the front runner for so much of season one. Kate Austin with seven MVP wow. points. That, that's more, I think, surprising to me than Jack, because as we said, like Kate was really strong in season one, but we've talked about the difficulty in her episodes that... I'm happy. She had a really good episode this season. I can imagine that that helped a little bit. Uh, in fifth place, top five baby, uh, our season three MVP, Juliet Burke, with 20 MVP points. I have to admit that that's a really surprising stat for me to some extent. Uh, that too Juliet high or has. too low? Uh, it's a little higher than I would have thought. I'm not mad about it. I'm thrilled about it, especially as we are about to go off and like have no Juliet for so much of the final season. Uh, and probably when we see her, maybe she scores some for LAX. Um, I don't think that we're going to be, uh, there's just not going to be enough room on the board for her for the finale, probably. Yeah. Uh, so we, we have like one more pass at Juliet that she's going to be a top 10 character. It's going to be pretty hard to unseat that. Um, I love that. I think that that demonstrates just the incredible impact the character has while she's around. Um, so that's amazing. Um, and I don't know how much we got into it, but like, it is worth like reminding people that like Elizabeth Mitchell, who plays Juliet, she left Lost. She was the star of a different show, V, v. that was, uh, uh, I would say, tragically short-lived. I think that they canceled the show just as it was getting like really good. I think like that mm-hmm. show actually was one of those shows of that era that like definitely had like kind of like a bad first season, but was starting to show some signs of improvement. It's funny to me that both James and Juliet, uh, that Josh Holloway and Elizabeth Mitchell, <laughs> as among their notable post-loss projects, are uh, alien invasion stories that are criminally underrated and tragically canceled. Uh, yeah. Looking at you, Colony, never forget. I, I do wonder if maybe uh, V would have seen it in like a time frame now, right, where Netflix usually gives everything at least a couple of seasons. So like, yeah, you can have one bad season and then get your feet out under it. But yeah, I do remember at the time there was... While it was sad to lose Juliet, there was certainly a lot of speculation behind it because of the news that Elizabeth Mitchell was going to be on V. So it's it's something that I think a lot of people were expecting her to depart the show in some way, just trying to figure out how. Yeah. Um, all right. Top four uh, with 21 MVP points. It is your season five MVP, the monster. Wow. Slinking in. Big surge. Twelve I mean twelve points from Snokey. Smokey. Snokey. Snokey. Uh, oh no. So is Snoke gonna be no. uh, in this? No. Uh, Palpatine. Sawyer was a Palpatine the entire time. Uh yeah. Snoke, Snokey, uh Deidre, that is a Star Wars reference. Uh yeah, I, I I think that makes sense though. Twelve points would be enough to really surge ahead to put you in the top three. Uh so uh, uh top four is the monster. So oh, he comes four. Coming in at four, coming in at three in room 23 points, uh, James Sawyer Ford wow. is top three, which I think is really impressive considering how much he sucks in that first season. We used yeah. to bag on him a lot. He definitively finished season one in the negatives. Season two, I want to say he like barely finished in the positives because remember, there was the long con where he w- did accomplish some stuff, but like did not do it in the best possible way. We've been tracking it, but like season three onward, I think was this this upward slope of Sawyer. I do wonder what season six is going to hold for him. I don't know if he'll rise higher than three, but uh, I'll I'll be intrigued to see where Sawyer ends. But it really shows how uh, an arc of a character can really make or break these points here. 
Um, so let's do the top two, and I'm actually going to give you the first one first because it's the clubhouse leader for this entire thing. Saeed Jarrah is oh, still nice. our number one MVP throughout all of Down the Hatch with 31 points. I I think it is it is it is at least uh, possible, if not probable, that the person in second place is going to end up being the new man in charge by the end of all of this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hurley Reyes, like, slow and steady, in my opinion. Uh, Because season one, like we said, not much of a pop, but, like, a very solid supporting character. Got more focus in seasons two through four specifically and has been, like, slowly accumulating points along the way as opposed to Saeed, who I think season one MVP, like, came off blazing hot from the get-go, maybe has fallen off a little bit, We'll see what happens in season six with Saeed. I could easily see Hurley be our overall MVP by the end of I, this. I think it. I think it is very possible that Hurley rises to the top. I think that our top four is probably going to remain as it is. I think that Kate is going to crack top five. I think ultimately Kate could go past Juliet is something that I could see. Um, although she will probably get dinged up with a couple of LVP points as well. I don't know. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. Uh, hard hard to say. Um, we'll, we'll see. I think that top four feels right to me in some order of Saeed, Hurley, who currently has 27. So it's a really tight gap between Hurley and Saeed right now. Saeed, Hurley, Sawyer, and the monster. I think some version of that will end up being our top four, but I could see it flipping around a little bit. I think we're going to have a lot of like good, positive Hurley vibes in this final season, knowing his ending and like watching for that and stuff. I just don't see Hurley scoring too many LVP points. I mean, listen, I don't know if you've heard Josh, but now everybody loves Hugo. Heard a rumor. I did hear a rumor that that is the case. Uh, What I'll tell you on the LVP front, rather than do the full bottom 10, is that Rosinski made a huge dent. This dude showed up and clocked 13 LVP points. Wow. Well, I think think it was 12, because I do believe you gave him one when he was introduced uh, in the hatch as the stain on the ceiling. Yes. So he, he ends with 13 LVP points overall, but that only gets him to bottom three, baby. Um... But Anthony Cooper, who was our clubhouse leader for LVPs, is no longer. Uh, That negative 18 for Anthony Cooper has been just barely eclipsed by Charles Widmore this season, who now has negative 19. So Charles Widmore, I think, is going to be a very difficult character to unseat. There's a a lot more heinous stuff from Charles Widmore and arguably like dim-witted stuff from Charles Widmore coming in season six. Uh, Just a couple of other observations from the MVP LVP section is that um, it's not like an insurmountable thing. I expect uh, very possible that he will end in the positives. But Benjamin Linus does have negative three right Mm -hmm. now. Not a good Uh, season for Ben. Uh, a fairly bad season for Ben. Uh, Jacob currently at negative one. I think with across the sea, he's probably going to dip even further. Would be my be- who are we going to give MVP points to? And across the sea is interesting. Oh, I, I mean, by default, the monster could clean sweep across the sea is not and th- impossible. And, and, and then that puts him in like a pretty darn good spot to possibly uh, end up not necessarily eclipsing Hurley, but like maybe ta- overtaking Sawyer for season six. Yeah, I think that he's going to be competitive for sure. John Locke uh, ends his life with two MVP points. For now, we'll we'll talk about him in the Sideways universe. 
Yeah. Uh, do we have to count? Do we count them as sideways versions uh, of these characters? I don't know. I, no. I think that's going to have no, to be designated no, no, to bend no. behind the curtain because I think that'd be way too much. To no, we're not of. doing that. We're not doing that. Um, all right. Let's talk about the, the episode rankings for season five. Uh, the gate is shut. We are clear for takeoff. Uh, no I turning will, the sub around. Uh, I'll give you the, the, the rankings of season five from 16 to one. Um, in last place, Namaste. Uh, in fifteenth place, it's the lie. Um, that jump, though, I should tell you, Namaste has three point three six six all scores factored in. The lie has three point five nine three. You wow. may as well call it three point six. That's, That's wild, crazy. Yeah, That's crazy. If, if, that, if that is the low bar, really. For season th- five, with the exception of Namaste, again, very solid, very solid overall. The spread is from three point five nine three to four point one three two at the top. That's really uh, excellent. That's pretty amazing. Um, so it's uh, sixteen is Namaste, fifteen is the lie, fourteen is the life and death of Jeremy Bentham. Maybe low for some people. Um, Thirteen Sorry. is that's fine. I agree with it. Thirteen is this place is death. Twelve is the little prince. 11 is Follow the Leader. 10 is Some Like It Hoth. 9 is Jughead. 8 is 316. 7, Whatever Happened, Happened. 6 is Because He Left. Top 5, Baby, He's Our You. 4, Dead is Dead. 3, The Incident. Uh, a finale. Uh, only getting top 3. 2 and 1. It's The Variable and LaFleur is in first place and second place, uh, respectively. Uh, so The Variable does eke it out and mm-hmm. by... Uh, a, a decent enough margin uh yeah. it, it goes past the floor so let me ask you josh I, I give us this exercise every season gun to your head much like the incident what is your favorite episode of season five now that we've rewatched it oh wow um favorite or best i mean i think maybe dead is dead is my answer to both personally uh mm. that i i just i get so much joy watching that one because the smoke monster is such a turd uh and it's really great to see him but like I love He's Are You and Whatever Happened Happened are are huge personal favorites of mine as well. I think that that um that top 7 I I mostly completely agree with the like order could shuffle right. um the the biggest order shift I would make is I would at least switch Whatever Happened Happened and Because You Left um but other than that I think that for me that's the right top 7. And I think I would probably boost some like it half a little bit higher maybe. Mm-hmm. Do, I do like that one. Yeah, I for me it's probably between the top two. Like I think the variable is a better episode, but I like LaFleur more. I think I just like the feeling of LaFleur. Just a really fun idea to watch Sawyer become the leader to really culminate in the the person that he's become, to really get introduced to Dharma life, which I'll admit maybe got old after a little bit once we find out what dunderheads they really were back in the 70s with all of our LVP characters. But I think in a middle stretch of episodes that were, I would say, uh, had had their foibles to them, were flawed. I think LaFleur was a really nice strike back of like, okay, this is really, really, really good lost, especially from a character perspective. So I, I think I might have to go with LaFleur right now, but if you catch me on a different day, it might be the variable. Um, what's interesting is uh, these stats, Mike, um, that as far as average ratings go across the seasons, 
that's never going to not be old. Uh, uh, season two has the worst average of any episode uh, of any season of Lost. The worst episode average at 3.5. Um, season five has the best average. Yeah, uh, that makes three- sense. 3.8 uh almost uh a full uh i think it's a 3.8 and then season four is a 3.6 is the next highest uh so and and it's pretty competitive between season four and one uh like kind of a game of inches across those um so season five has the highest average rating and it's not going to get challenged by season six for yeah. sure but season five does not have a single episode that cracks our top 10 interesting not a single one the highest it gets is the variable at 11 just at the gate just looking in faraday's like let me in he's just looking in the variable is at 11 and then our top 10 from last season remains intact the brig in 10th the shape of things to come in ninth the man behind the curtain in eighth um, flashes before your eyes and the pilot are tied at sixth um, walk about at fifth exodus at fourth there's no place like home is third the constant is second and through the looking glass in first position but we have a ton of season five that then comes in uh yeah. it's th- it's right there at 11 the floor is 15 the instant is 18 which is kind of wild uh to be to be honest right above live together die alone oh wow so we answered that question uh yeah officially according to down the hatch the incident is tied with lockdown exactly um we have like a whole cluster of season five dominating the 50s uh like the majority Hmm. of season five is in the 50s uh some like it hoth follow the leader the little prince uh this place is death the life and death of jeremy bentham the lie all of those are the 50s. Uh, the 50s are completely dominated by season five, with the exception of Confidence Man, ooh, in translation, The Hunting Party, and SOS. And the lowest ranked season five episode is Namaste at 71 out of 95 episodes of Lost thus far. So, yeah, I mean, if you told me coming in that season five would be the only season so far to not have any episodes in the top 10 or the bottom 10, I would believe you. That yeah. sounds just about right that again it is consistency on a very high plateau uh but nothing to really reach almost nothing to reach those highs of those top 10 episodes but understandably averaging the highest safe to say that like you said season six will not be there i'll be intrigued to see if season six is going to be the lowest rated uh as opposed to season two and i'll be intrigued to see if any season six episodes make the top 10 because I know we love the end, but I, I the end still might be so divisive to people that it, it might not make it there. I'm very curious as well. Uh, really, really curious to see if there is a single season six episode that'll crack that top ten. I think you're looking at uh, you're looking at Abiturno and the end as your likeliest suspects there. I don't know though. Uh, yeah, I don't I know. Would th- I would think that the hatchlings who've like come this far are going to show up for the finale, right? Like, I think like you're not like crushing lost all these years later, unless you still really love it. Uh, so I expect that it's going to mostly rate high, but I don't think it'll be like 4.2s across the board necessarily. So, um, it'll be interesting. I guess like it, let's, let's do this, right? Let's put, let's, let's put our money where our mouth is. Like, I think the end will be a top 10 episode. I do. Okay. I do think so. I think it'll get there. Um, I think it's going to be a pretty open and shut 4.2 for me. 
I mean, uh, same. I think I think what is going to help the end maybe is the fact that we are going to be building up to it. Yeah. I think that there is so much hindsight on the ending and derision behind it that we sort of think about it as an isolated incident. But I think what I'm what I'm actually most excited about with season six is reexamining it. I love reexamining stuff that I'm more critical about. That's why I loved about season five. But season six in particular, knowing how everything ends, viewing things like the sideways universe, viewing uh, everything going on with the island and the candidates and the journeys of Hurley and Jack in particular, I'm really excited to see how it builds to the end. And if it does so cogently, I think that could lead to a very good finish for the end as well. Yeah, um, I I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm excited. Um, Mike, do you have your acts for Ooh, yeah. season five? You My got eras. that handy. Uh, yeah. yeah there, why don't it's... you Why don't you talk about that? Set that up again for any latecomers who've uh, joined us on Down the Hatch. Yeah. So basically, in watching season one, I was like, I feel like I could divide this season up into chapters, and that's what I attempted to do. Now, the exercise admittedly got a lot easier these past couple seasons. Season four only had fourteen episodes, uh, so that was. Really, really easy to do. And you mentioned this actually when we were covering the season, Josh. Season five is actually fairly neatly cut up as well. I think, again, part of that is accredited due to just the structure that they built in, that they had everything planned out over the course of this season. But alas, here they are. Feel free to agree or disagree, Josh and Hatchlings at large. So to me, quite obviously, first era, episode one to episode five, because you left to this place's death, I like to call the turntable. Uh, This is really setting up, you know, everything going on in 2007 off the island and then just everyone hopping through time like a record on a turntable in uh, in the island sense. This is where we experience Jughead, the flaming arrows and, you know, Locke's about to turn the wheel at the end of this place's death to reset everything for the last time. So I think that's a succinct punctuation point on the time traveling part of the season. Then we have this interesting middle period. And look, I'll also say I'm going by the release order. I am not going by the nuclear option, uh, which I think would be separate things out differently. But from the way it aired, episode 6 to episode 8, 316 to LaFleur, I'm calling Departures and Arrivals. Uh, Departures from the mainland, Arrivals back on the island, Departures of John Locke, Arrivals of Alana, of Caesar, of brand new characters, arrivals in a new time period as well. It's a very transitional period to set up where our characters are going to be for the back half of the season. Episode episode 9 to episode 13, uh, Namaste to Some Like It Hoth, I call Dharmaville and Ajira Living. This is like, you know, I regard this before, this is some of those more character-centric episodes where it's not like there's nothing going on, but we're getting to see more of like, slice of life things happening there is some acceleration with the ben stuff in 2007 but outside of that i would not say these are very plot heavy episodes in comparison to the rest of the season this is more so an opportunity to meditate on characters like kate and saeed this is a culmination of a lot of their stuff big moments for ben and then once daniel faraday steps back on that sub we change chapters one more time the variable to the incident is simply titled smoke bomb Mm. I love that, because that's exactly what that is. Yeah, exactly. It's something that uh, obfuscates, confuses, and, uh, you know, ultimately does its job. Yeah, beautiful. I love that. Yeah, so those those are my eras. I'll be really intrigued for season six, because if they went in there with the, uh, the, still, the cohesiveness of season five, 
I'll I'll have no idea how to make heads or tails. This at least had distinct story points that I could carve it up about. Season six might be my hardest exercise yet. Well, I think season six is going to be really, really fun. Uh, I think we're going to have a lot of nostalgia uh, as like, because I think I remember this being a gripe of mine um, during uh, during the airing of the show where like they would go back to they go back to the caves in Lighthouse and like Shannon's inhaler is on the ground. And I remember being like, I get like, we've got other stuff to do. Like, give it like we don't have time to stop for Shannon's inhaler. But like now I'm in this place, Mike, where like. Not that like I can't wait to see Shannon's <laughs> but like but like the ways in which I think the final season is going to look back on everything that came before and yes. therefore give us that same opportunity uh to look back, I think is just as what this whole thing has been is gonna be a gift. Um and like it's crazy. We we have this plotted out, right? Like we've got we've got down the hatch calendarized. Uh, we can like set our watches to this stuff. And as I'm looking down the line, um, we are doing the finale. It's dropping on Christmas, uh, or maybe it's Happy it Christmas, Christmas, Charlie. Or I think it might be Christmas Eve, actually. Uh, so like, that's crazy. We are we are so close. I know, we're, some, we're the, like the so waning close. months of summer are occurring right now. Like back to school is happening, and just thinking in like three months' time, four months' time, actually, by the time we're talking about it, we're gonna be talking about the end of it. To the point that you made before, yeah, I'm really excited for my own viewpoint shift because I think the erroneous thing that myself and a lot of fans did in the final season was come in there with the assumption that everything is going to be answered. They asked all these questions, they set up all these mysteries, clearly they are going to, for lack of a better term, land the plane and give us something that makes us all satisfied. Uh, Egg on our faces in that regard with the last part. I'm really excited to look at season six with the mentality of one last ride. With this idea of, like, this is the final lap for a lot of these characters, and sometimes they might take the opportunity to pontificate on how far they've come, They'll be able to look at other alternate versions of themselves of like not idealized versions of themselves, but like unawoken versions of themselves in a completely different world. It's going to be really fun to take a look at, to think about this is the last time we're experiencing these characters more so than, all right, this is the last season of Lost. So therefore, all these boxes need to be checked before we end up finishing out the series. Yeah. Uh, a lot of this along the way has been like, we got to stop and smell the Bernard and Roses, right? Like mm-hmm. that is like... That has sort of been the vibe and like we do do the story analysis and like that is super fun. And then we like try to like connect the things where it's like this doesn't make sense. But what if this like I don't expect that to stop. Like I expect that to continue as we go into the final season. But my hope, my 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 hope against all hopes is as we as we go forth into the jungle of the final season of Lost here on Down the Hatch, as we go into season six, that we are not forgetting uh like that sort of like central foundation of like just loving the vibe of lost mm-hmm. uh loving these characters loving the dialogue loving the music loving the scenery um loving it when these characters get together uh and 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 having that kind of you know lead the way there will probably be times where that's really difficult there's probably going to be times where we're going to get like caught up in like how frustrated we are with like is it an answer is it a resolution that's like yes. probably even bigger, you know, for certain characters. Like, is it a mistake? You know, are we going to see those things and get like furiously frustrated and hung up on them? 
it's not impossible. We're doing this week to week, 16 whatever weeks. It's uh it's not nothing, you know? Like that's a, it's a slog. Uh that's a lot like the, like the like the physical reality of making down the hatch is that Mike and I sit down in chairs and bark at each other for 3 hours every week. In addition to all the other podcasting nonsense that we're doing, it is not an insignificant undertaking. It has been very difficult to make this show. It's been joyous, and it's been incredible, and it has been one of the true pleasures and honors and services of my career uh, to get Mm -hmm, to do this mm -hmm. show with you each and every week, Mike. But it's also not nothing. Uh, And so that weekly grind with the final season of Lost where are we going to be? Whose side are we on? Are we with the man in black? Are we going to try and burn it all down? Or are we, and I'm not going to say with Jacob, or are we with Hurley? Are we going to be with the new man in charge? And are we going to be able to do this with a smile on our face? Uh, I, I'm i excited to find out the answer. I know yep. what my aspirations are. Let's Let's clock in and see what the reality looks like. It's going to be incredibly exciting. And to your point, you know, I think no matter what, even when you and I are just sort of like riffing on confusing slash outright bad things on Lost, we still have a great time. So I think even if the sixth season isn't your favorite, we're going to find something to love about it, even if it's freaking Kimi showing up and making eggs. Like, look forward to that. And I look forward to look forward to talking about that. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's odd to even think about, as you said, that we're in the end game now, but I'm still going to relish the journey that we have to make here, especially with such an oddity that is season six. Yes. Uh, cannot wait. So we are getting into that starting with Across the Sea. We are taking it out of its normal episode order. We are watching it as the prologue for season six. We've been threatening it all along the way. We are much like Kimi making good on our threats, unfortunately, for better and for worse. We are going to do Across the Sea. We are going to watch that with the patrons of Post Show Recaps at the Discord level coming up very soon here. September 6th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We are going to watch Across the Sea in the Post Show Recaps Patreon Discord. It's early in the month. We would love for you to sign up. You're going to love it. You're going to have a lot of great people to talk about Lost Wiz, um, and it would mean the world to us for you to support the podcast if you can. Patreon.com slash post show recaps. Let's get let's let's get together. It's the final season. Let's get together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let's hang out, hanging out. Let's do that together. Let's watch this season together. Let's see if we can't make it better for each other as we're watching together. I think would be really, really fun to do. So consider signing up for those weekly watch alongs, 6.30 p.m. Eastern this time for uh, September 6th uh, for Across the Sea, patreon.com slash post show recaps uh get your feedback in for across the sea as mm-hmm. well down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com um mike bloom beyond lost you've got those bloom files i also know that you're uh, you're busy with another island uh that's currently occupying your time quite a bit Josh, I have so many monsters in my life right now. There's the smoke monster and now there is a monster that is being alluded to and basically has become corporeal via one Jeffrey Probst. The Survivor 41 preseason is here. 
You know what? It's such a shame that it's not Survivor 42 happening no. at the same exact time as we're getting into that final so, season. So, I don't of know. Lost. Maybe the monster will return. Maybe the monster will become a person at the end of Survivor 41 I, and then become a contestant in Survivor 42. I, so, I got to tell you, I have no idea what that means. Uh, I am in this wonderful place right now where I'm like very disconnected from Survivor and like I've got like heavy mutes on Survivor terms because mm-hmm. I'm just like mm-hmm. not really like into like doing the deep dive right now. I need at the very least to give myself like a season long break if not longer than that uh, my life is fine to quote uh jeff probst um so like i haven't seen the cast i haven't heard any of the twists all i've heard well, i've seen the hair all i've heard <laughs> is uh i heard about the there's a monster which i feel like uh in like my most narcissistic form is a shot across the bow uh and so like i'm like i'm kind of curious to check out survivor 41 totally sight unseen for like the first time in i don't know ever without any sort of preseason know-how uh my current feeling is that i'll at least watch the premiere and i'm gonna try really really hard to pay no attention to the incredible work that you are doing mike bloom which i know you are doing a ton of because you're podcasting you're writing all the stuff at parade i assume give us the, the full rundown yeah, so this is uh, appealing to everyone except Josh Wiggler in the moment, which I respect. Should I? I respect. Should I? It, it, listen, it's such a rare opportunity. It's crazy. Yeah, take like, advantage thinking, of it, man. I was thinking about this. Like I was like maybe like my path to to healing, like my my rift with survivors to become a filthy casual. Uh, so like uh, maybe that's like the way. Like Doctor Strange had to uh, go be a magician instead of a surgeon. I just have yeah. To this be is what like, you're using your hands for now. Yeah, is to type yeah. on the Survivor Facebook page. Yeah, I just have to be like a filthy Facebook casual and then I'll feel better about the show. Like, all right, you know, maybe I'll give that a shot. But what are you well, doing? Uh, give us the give us the rundown. Yeah, so Rob Cicerino and I have already gotten together on Monday, August 30th, which was the day the cast dropped, to just sort of like preview everything that came out. I will not go into descriptions for the present company, but we sort of broke down what we thought it meant and uh, what we think it means for the season to come. And then I have been writing and speaking up a storm uh, not the calm. Uh, basically, every day since this past Tuesday, in fact, if you're listening to this on Friday or even Wednesday, there is a backlog of articles you can check out where I had the opportunity to send some questions in to these castaways, get their responses, turn them into articles, turn them into podcasts. Articles are coming out twice a day at Parade.com, uh, Women in the Morning, Men in the Afternoon. And then I take some of those questions and I go onto a podcast with Rob Sesternino and we break down their answers and some stuff from their bios and other accoutrements and give our thoughts on those players. So at the point you're listening to this, one's coming out Wednesday, one's coming out Friday, and one's coming out, uh, I think, next Tuesday after Labor Day. So we have those three prod podcasts to break everything down. I think if everything goes smoothly, you should basically know everything you want to about the Survivor 41 cast if you choose to by next Wednesday so that you can properly salivate in all this information before it goes completely out the window uh once september 22nd rolls around but we have fun and i hope if you're interested in survivor be sure to check that out i'm also going to be talking about survivor pearl islands or i already have at the time people are listening to this this past week with rob and Haley strong i was on renap this past week introducing a uh, star trek to akiva winnaker and actually a bit of a lost connection josh there's a new star trek series star trek prodigy and the theme song is uh, composed by none other than Michael Giacchino. That's amazing. Yeah, so he has his hands in all sorts of pop culture pies. So 
really, really big week for me in terms of podcasting. To be you're crazy. To, to be crazy. frank, uh, to be Lapidus, I was grateful to have this brief opportunity to not have to watch a Lost episode <laughs> this week. Yeah, but I now hear that ya. but now that I'm sort of uh, on the other side of things, things are beginning to calm down. I'm really excited to go across the sea next week. Uh, I just I I need to like just like be very clear and explicit in saying this is like Mike Bloom. You're a rock star. You're an insane person. Wow. And you're so talented and incredible, and I'm I'm so happy that you're uh, you're. It, it feels like you're living your best life right now. So this is amazing, and I'm yeah. just thrilled for you. It's it's absolute uh, like it's labor, but absolute emphasis on labor of love. Great. I'm it's having great. so much fun right now. And if you choose to check it out again, live your life. Choose to engage with what you want to. But you're listening to like a two hour lost podcast. If you're a Survivor fan and you're into commitment, like the, the podcasts run about just as long. So throw it into your earbuds when you're not listening to DTH. It's out there. All right. There's so much that's going on on post-show recaps. Uh, do you like that pronunciation? Is that good? How about post-show Ricardus Alpert? <laughs> post-show Ricardus. Uh, we've got Ted Lasso podcast. Walking Dead is back. Uh, the Ang Gang. They've got Ang in there. Avatar The Last Airbender coverage. Community building is fully underway. Uh, we've even got some video game coverage for you in Final Fantasy VII. Uh, Brooklyn Zed and myself talking about that game. We're pulling back the curtain on some stuff that's happening in the Post Show Recaps patron feed. Um, uh, Kevin Mahadeo and Melissa Woodward, who do YA, which is their YA podcast uh, about young adult properties. They're talking about the Hunger Games. We're going to release that in the main feed so you get a sense of what's going on behind the scenes as we have so many really fun exclusive shows just for the patrons of Post Show Recaps, including a new series all about James Bond that is launching this month uh, from the incredible Jessica Lee and Grace Leader uh, talking about James Bond movies. So it's just an insane amount of content that's happening. And it's only September, the one year anniversary of the Post Show Recaps patron uh, experiment experience is October. So you better believe we're going to bring it. So it's a really fun time on the podcast. If you are able to support, we appreciate it. Patreon.com slash poster recaps. But at the very least, there should be something out there for you to sink your ears into tons of content. So much very visceral image sinking your ears into something. Put them in. Put them in. Uh, All right. We will call it there. We will be back next week. Officially launching in to season six of Lost, albeit out of order, starting with Across the Sea as our season six prologue. Until then, everybody, take care. Bye-bye. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.